This is Jocko Podcast number 56 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. Silent screams and broken dreams. Addicts, junkies, pushers, and fiends. Crowded spaces and sad faces never look back as the police chase us. Consumed slowly by chaos, a victim of the streets. Hungry for knowledge, but afraid to eat. A life of destruction, it seems no one cares. A man-child alone with burdens to bear. Trapped in a life of crime and hate, it seems the ghetto will be my fate. If I had just one wish, it would surely be that God would send angels to set me free. Free from the madness of a city running wild. Free from the life of a ghetto child. And that is a poem written by a young DeAndre McCullough, a criminal drug dealer who, when he wrote that poem, was doing time. After being one of the main subjects in a book called The Corner, which is written by David Simon and Edward Burns, which documents the violent drug trade in Baltimore, Maryland. And that sort of morphed into an HBO series that was called The Corner as well, which paved the way for another series, which is called The Wire, which is just an outstanding miniseries that came out on HBO. But The Wire is is fictional, even though it's based on kind of the, the same situation in Baltimore. But The Corner is real. The book, The Corner is Real, and it gives a very clear and a very grim view at the life of drugs and crime in the inner city, namely in Baltimore. And I'm going to go back to the book now. We can't stop it. Not with all the lawyers, guns, and money in this world. Not with guilt or morality or righteous indignation. Not with crime summits or task forces or committees. Not with policy decisions made in places that can't be seen from the lost corner of Fayette and Monroe. No lasting victory in the war on drugs can be bought by doubling the number of beat cops or tripling the number of prison beds. No peace can come from kingpin statutes and civil, civil forfeiture laws and warrantless searches and whatever the hell else is about to be tossed into ne- next year's crime bill. Down on Fayette Street, they know. Today, as on every other day, the shop will be open by mid-morning and the touts will be on the corners chirping out product names as if the stuff is street legal. The runners will bring a little more of the package down and the fiends will queue up to be served. A line of gaunt, passive supplicants stretching down the alley and around the block. The corner is rooted in human desire. Crude and certain and immediate. And the hard truth is that all the law enforcement in the world 
can't mess with desire. Down at Fayette and Monroe and every corner like it in Baltimore, the dealers and fiends have won because they are legion. They've won because the state of Maryland and the federal government have imprisoned thousands and arrested tens of thousands and put maybe 100,000 on parole and probation rolls, and still it isn't close to enough. By raw demographics, the men and women of the corners can claim victory. In Baltimore alone, a city of fewer than 700,000 souls with some of the highest recorded rates of intravenous drug use in the nation, they are 50, perhaps 60,000 strong. Three of them available for every prison bed in the entire state of Maryland. The slingers are manning more than 100 open-air corners serving up the product as fast as they can get it off the southbound Metroliner. And the fiends are chasing down that blast 24-7. In neighborhoods with where no other wealth exists, They've constructed an economic engine so powerful that they'll readily sacrifice everything to it. And make no mistake, that engine is humming. No slacking profit margins, no recessions, no bad quarterly reports, no layoffs, no naturalized unemployment rate. Get it straight, they're not just out here to sling and shoot drugs. In drug market in cities across the nation, lives without any obvious justification are given definition through a simple, self-sustaining capitalism. The corner has a place for them, every last soul. Touts, runners, lookouts, mules, stick-up boys, stash stealers, enforcers, fiends, burn artists, police snitches, all necessary in the world of the corner. Each is to be used, abused, and ultimately devoured with unfailing precision. It's about the fiends, thousands of them who want that good dope. They need it the way other souls need to breathe air. It's about the slingers, the young crews working the packages, all of them willing to trade a morality that they've never seen or felt for a fleeting moment of material success. They are working the package with the hidden knowledge that they will fall, that with rare exception, the money won't last and the ride will be over in six months or four or three. Violence. Violence is no longer the prerogative of the professional, but a function of impulse and emotion. The contract killers and the well-planned assassinations of earlier eras are mere myth on these corners. Now, the moment of truth generally comes down to some man-child with hurt feelings waving a a thirty-eight around, spraying bullets up and down the block. The accidental shooting of bystanders is now commonplace. Even 15-year-old hoppers have loaded 38s hidden in the alley. The job is little better than a death wish. And in the end, the corner best serves the hardcore, the hardcore, the junkyard dogs with neither the time nor the inclination 
for pity. The corner proves itself every day. It destroys whatever it touches. And eventually, the corner destroyed DeAndre McCullough. Even though he received the second chance in his life, and he actually got to play a small role in that series that came out on HBO, The Wire. He got some other jobs in the entertainment industry as well, but the corner called him back. And that guy, DeAndre, who wrote that poem, he ended up dead of a heroin overdose in 2012 at the age of 35. Now, there's a reason I'm bringing all this up, and that is because we have a guest tonight. A guest that is actually more responsible for this podcast than anyone, and we'll get to that later. But his name is Peter Atia. And he grew up a boxer, has been a long-distance endurance athlete, got his degree in medical engineering and applied mathematics, and then got his doctorate as an MD from Stanford. And did his residency in surgery. And the reason that I started off this whole talk about the corner is because he did that residency at a place called Job John Hopkins Hospital, which is about three miles from the actual corner of Fayette Monroe Street. The war zone that's pictured in the book, the place where DeAndre McCullough lived and where violence was and in many ways still is just a part of life. And Peter was at ground zero in the war zone and saw more darkness and suffering probably than any person should have to and learned a lot from it. And we're going to get to that in a bit. But first of all, Peter Atia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, sir. Glad to have you on, finally. <laughs> and you grew up. We'll get, we'll get right into it. You grew up. Tell us a little bit about just growing up. You grew up in Canada. And I know you've covered, for those of you that hasn't listened to the Tim Ferriss' interview with you, listen to him. What is there, three of them? Yeah, I think yeah, so. I think there's three of them. Yeah. You can listen to those and get more details on, you know, Peter, his whole background. But for those that are just listening right now, you grew up in Canada. Give us a little, little, little statement about that. Yeah, I grew up in Toronto. Um, you know, immigrant parents, so grew up, you know, sort of in the wonderful lower middle class. Uh, not the best suburb of Toronto. There, Toronto, like New York, has five boroughs. Four of them are nice. One of them is not. I grew up in the one that's not so nice. Um, and uh, meaning it's just a dump, not mm-hmm. like it's, you know, it's not like a war zone or anything. Um, <clears throat> and I have lived now in the United States for about half my life. So I high school and college was in Canada. And then everything from med school beyond has been here. And I am now a dual citizen. Of both and how, how did that transition work? Because you didn't you you obviously got applied mathematics degree. And then you worked in the civilian world a little while with that degree, right? Yeah, so uh, my plan was always to do a PhD in aerospace engineering, 
Um, and so I, that's why I did the mechanical engineering and applied math. I did the two things for undergrad. Got it. And then was sort of just in the, almost about ready to go and start that PhD in aerospace. And then I had a, just a complete change of heart and decided I wanted to go into medicine. And so that, so I, what I had to do for a year then was you got to take this thing called the MCAT, which of course I didn't have any of the courses to take it. So I had to sort of teach myself the chemistry and biology that summer, took the MCAT, but then I still had- A lot had, of times that's what I do in the summertime is I'll, I'll teach myself, you yep. know, <laughs> chemistry and biology yeah, in the summertime. Well, I, I, didn't, I didn't do that well. And then, uh, and then I had to do what's called a post-back year where you go back and you're in the process of applying to medical school without actually having the courses to get in. So if you get in, it's conditional. And, and so that year, because I'd already graduated, I just taught calculus. Um, so I, you know, was like a, you know, adjunct lecturer at the university and taught calculus, which I, I always enjoyed. I mean, cause I'd taught it for a couple of years before. And so, and so that's why you're waiting to get into med school. Applying and then, and getting my courses. Like I forget what I had to oh, okay. take biology and uh, psychology, biochemistry. I had to take a few prerequisites to get in because in engineering and math, I'd never yeah. taken a single course. In fact, the day before I took the MCAT, this this is only going to be funny for geeks who get biology, so I'll, I'll okay. clarify in a moment. But <laughs> that I'm, won't be me. <laughs> yeah, I'm studying for the MCAT this summer that, that I'm supposed to take the test. And the whole time I'm studying, I'm like, you know, I, I can't believe how sloppy these textbooks are. They keep confusing meiosis and mitosis. Like, why can't they just spell it the same way both times? Like, they, I didn't realize that it was two separate things, mm. right? Meiosis is when a cell, cell separates, separates the but doesn't replicate its DNA. Mitosis is when it creates an equal copy. And I literally, not until the day before the MCAT, realized that those were two separate things. <laughs> I mean, that's how, that's how clueless yeah. I was going into this test. Yeah, Which and I was the lucky only reason I knew that was because I was helping one of my daughters study for their biology <laughs> something. Yeah, so. yeah, anybody who took any biology <laughs> course should know that, but but I hadn't <laughs> taken any. So, and so then you get in med school. Yeah, you go there. What's that? Four years? Another four years of school? Uh huh. And then you get done with that, and now it's time to do your residency. So, you yep. do you get to pick where you're going to go? Not uh, sort of. So it's a funny system called the match system. So when you're in your, I guess you're beginning your fourth year of medical school, by that point you have to figure out what you want to do. Do you want to be a surgeon? Do you want to be a, an internist? Do you want to be a pediatrician, a radiologist, whatever you want to do? Because all of those have different programs. And then you have to apply to those programs. So let's say you wanted to do orthopedic surgery. You would send out your application to all the orthopedic programs in the country. Hopefully you'd get interviews to a good number of them. You'd go do the interviews. And then you would submit to a match system, a rank order of the places you'd want to go. And you don't put something on there that you don't want to take. So if you, if you, you, know, if you applied to 30 programs, you got interviewed at 15 and you liked 10, you rank those 10 in order. Similarly, the programs, after they interview everybody, do the same exercise. Mm. They do the rank. Mm. And then a computer matches you one to one. That's actually pretty squared away. Yeah, so you, the only way you're going to guarantee you know where you're going is rank one program and hope you get it. Okay. So um, in my case, I, I think I ranked five programs, um, and I ranked um, Johns Hopkins first for surgery, not because I wanted to live in Baltimore, though in many ways I think it was a blessing to do so, 
But, you know, because at the time, I don't know that this is true today, but at the time it was probably the best general surgery training program in the country. And that was a combination of two things. One is you had these kind of legendary surgeons there that had pioneered some of the most complicated, what are called hepatobiliary surgeries, surgeons, you know, surgery of the pancreas and the liver and stuff like that. But at the same time, as you alluded to, it was in a war zone. And so the other aspect of training to be a good surgeon is having great exposure to penetrating trauma. So trauma, you always want to divide into blunt and penetrating. Blunt trauma is not often operative. So people that get hit by cars and things like that, you know, ends up being more orthopedic. But if you're a general surgeon and you need to be able to cut open the chest and the abdomen and things like that, it's penetrating trauma. It's, it's, you want knife and gunfight. Um, not that you want it, but that's, that's the training ground mm-hmm. to be in. So, and, and sort of Baltimore would have been, you know, probably in the top five. What places. year was this? 2000, okay. 2001. Yeah. 2000, I think. Okay. And, when you were, what was the what was the thing that slipped? Or this is going backwards a little bit. What was the thing that transitioned in your mind where you all of a sudden wanted to do medicine? Well, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I don't think I've ever talked about this publicly. Um, so when I was in engineering school, I uh, in my second year I started doing some volunteer work, um, and I this, the reason why is too complicated. But I started volunteering with. Uh, some kids that were in a, in a shelter that had been abused. So it was, a, it was a home for sexually abused kids. And that got me interested in sort of volunteering in a hospital. So I was volunteering at a hospital that um, had, you know, it was a pediatric uh, cancer ward. So you would just sort of, you know, you'd go up there and you'd kind of hang out with kids and just play with them and stuff like that. And so between that experience and then I was still doing this volunteer work with these kids who had been sexually abused. A lot of those kids were suicidal. So I also found myself in the hospital a lot with these kids after they'd attempted to kill themselves. And I think somewhere in my senior year of engineering, I kind of had this, you know, I I don't know what the word is. You know, I don't think it's an existential crisis as much as maybe a nervous breakdown, but just a bunch of things were kind of going on, probably some undiagnosed psychiatric issues on my part. But I realized like... I love engineering and math intellectually, but I, there's no emotional connection outside of the joy of solving a problem, which, by the way, is probably plenty enough. But I wondered if there was something else that I'd be more interested in that could scratch two itches, right? It could scratch sort of the intellectual itch, but also maybe an emotional itch. And so I spent the majority of my senior year thinking about, was there something else I ought to do? Um, but I'd been successful in, in my undergrad, so it was sort of a given that, you know, if you're going to graduate at the top of your class, you're going to go off and do the best PhD program. So at the very end, when I sort of declined to do that and I turned down a bunch of scholarships, um, it seemed a little odd to, that I would go and do medicine. But but that's really the reason. It was, you know, it's kind of this epiphany I had one day, actually, mm-hmm. uh, while I was in the hospital. And I was sort of had this. Actually, it's really funny. We just moved, as we were talking about earlier. And. You know, one of the things moving is great for is cleaning up stuff. And I actually found my essay that I wrote when I applied to medical school back in, you know, whatever, 95 or 96. And uh, it was really interesting to go back and read the story because it's exactly kind of how I remembered it, right? Which was like this moment I had this sort of insight that this is what I wanted to do. So um, so that's that's kind of the, 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 the series of events that led me to have that seemingly 
orthogonal change in direction. It, okay, so now you go through that, you end up, you, you get your accepted to your residency at John, John Hopkins. You show up there. What, what's that like? <laughs> well, I remember when I, I interviewed at Hopkins for medical school as well. Um, and I, I was lucky enough to get in there for medical school. And at the time, I think Hopkins was technically the best medical school in the country. I think it was Harvard and Hopkins were the best two, and Stanford was, you know, maybe third, fourth, fifth. But I remember when I interviewed there for medical school, at the end of the interview, like I had to spend a night there. And so they put us up in the dorms for the med students, which great idea. You get to meet your upper classmates. And I remember I said uh, that Friday night, I said, hey, I'm going to go walk down to the harbor. It's like a mile and a half down the road. And they were like, oh, no, no, you can't do that. Hmm. I said, what do you mean? They said, you, 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 you can't walk outside of the hospital. And then they pointed out that on every corner, there was like a booth with an armed guard. There's a guard in full armor with uh, an automatic weapon. And so... I remember at the time thinking, yeah, I probably don't want to go here for med school. So, And, of course, Stanford sort of, for a guy who'd never been to California and who'd lived in miserable cold weather his whole life, I was like, it could have been the 100th ranked medical school. I was still going there. <laughs> yeah, so, I have some actual stats that I pulled up. So, war zone. In 1993, there was 48 murders for every 100,000 people. There's, what, 700,000 in the, in the city. The next highest was in 2015. 55 and in 1993 again there was 353 homicides homicides yeah almost one a day and so you know i have to put this in there just you know because we're sitting here calling it a war zone so when i was in ramadi in 2006 the 11 ad which is the the ready first brigade you know 5600 soldiers while we were there with them for six months they lost 61 guys so what I'm saying is now that doesn't count the enemy casualties, yeah. but it counts the friendly casualties that are showing up at our med center, right? So there, you know, you're talking three or four hundred. Well, you just said one a day. Yeah, about one, one a day. day. Okay. So, um, so you knew how bad it was when you got I mean, well, because you'd already I mean, visited I, it. Yeah, I sort of knew it was dangerous, but but I think when I decided that. You know, for this that season of my life, you got to sacrifice everything, and you have to go to the place where you're going to get the best training. And I didn't want to leave California because you know, four years in California for the first time was, you know, I mean, you know, you guys know what it's like. Yeah. I mean, it was like I don't ever want to leave this place. But I also knew I just couldn't get that level of training on the West Coast, and it was, you know, you basically had to go to a place like Hopkins, Brigham and Women's in Boston, maybe Wash U in St. Louis was going to offer a very similar environment. Um, so then, you know, so then I ended up ranking it first. They ranked me first. So away we go. We get lucky. It's a match made in heaven. And that's like kind of February of your senior year. And then reality sits in, which is you've got sort of four months until you have to show up. And that was kind of like the, oh shit moment, right? Like that I really just signed up for this. Um, and a good friend of mine who was two years ahead of me in medical school, his name is Brian Dunham. He's now a uh, pediatric head and neck, uh, ear, nose, and throat surgeon at CHOP in Philadelphia. He was at Hopkins, which was at the time the best ear, nose, and throat program in the country. And he actually recommended I read this book, The Corner. Because, and Brian's one of these guys who's just, you know, he's just, he's like a renaissance man, you know. Like, not only is he a great surgeon, he's like a gifted artist. You know, his side job is medical illustration. 
Like, <laughs> you can't believe what this guy can do. But he's introspective, right? And he was he said, look, you know, you're you're gonna sign up to be in this war zone and you're going to be taking care of people that it's going to be very easy to despise. So he said, You need to read this book to gain a sense of their perspective. Um, because very like I said, you know, so so at the time I, I can't remember the stats. I feel like at the time that I was there, we averaged about sixteen penetrating traumas a day. Now, to put that in perspective, in general surgery, you're on call every second to every fourth night. So average about every third. That means every third night, 120 times a year, you will spend the night in the hospital, not sleeping, waiting to take care of any trauma patient. So if every third day and night, you know, 16 of these people are getting shot and stabbed, you're going to have a lot of time in the ER, in the trauma bay, dealing with that. And it's really easy to get jaded really quickly. It's fun for the first month, and then all of a sudden, every time somebody gets shot, it's preventing you from sleeping. Which, when we're sitting here all well-rested, sounds like a very callous thing to say, but all of a sudden, you're sort of like, damn it, man, Like I can't eat because the trauma pager just went off again. To this day, I still eat shockingly fast, and it drives my wife nuts, but she doesn't understand. I said, I, I think it's just I'm a victim of you never know when you're going to have to Stop what you're doing, and that might be your last meal. Even I shave quickly, because the worst thing that could happen is you got shaving cream all over, and the trauma pager goes off, and you got to run down half shaved. You, know, you got one side of your beard down, and the other side not. So it's stupid things like that. So, <clears throat> so that was Brian's recommendation. So I got the book immediately, devoured it, found it to be the most depressing thing I had ever it read. Is. It's heavy. Um, made more depressing by the fact that they pull no punches, no names are changed. So every person you read about, you were reading about it in a completely uncensored, uncensored, unfiltered way. And I mean, you, you read it, you know, there's nothing happy about this book. Like you just finish it and you think, yes, you have more empathy and you understand where, where these folks are going to be coming from. But it's like, I don't, it's not like you finish that book and go, ah, here's the solution. We need a six-point plan that's going to do X, Y. It's yeah. like, I don't know. That's kind of why I read that one excerpt. It's like, we can't win. Which is an awful thought, and that's what—that's the impression the book gives you. Is, is we can't win, and I, I, that the the way he phrases it of being like it doesn't matter how many police and whatever you do, you're you're going against human desire. Well, the the stat that you reiterated, and I remember it very well from when I read this book the first time, was you couldn't take every junkie and put them away. If you took every federal and state prison bed in Maryland, you'd have three people for it if you just you looked at the users never mind the guns the money and everything that comes with it so yeah that's not a solution now there's a second reason that i don't think brian knew because i don't think anybody knew that that book really hit home which um was it, it, it's 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 per, it sounds tangential to this story but it becomes highly related in at the beginning of uh End of my third year of medical school, I'm going to the gym one day, riding my bike, as I always do. I get up, I get to the gym, I get off my bike, go to lock it up, and I was like, my back really hurts. Like, really hurt. Not like, oh, it's a little stiff. Like, something feels horrible. So I started walking down the steps to the gym, and I was like, not going to happen today. Like, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't tie my shoe. So I just went back, got on my bike, rode 
rode back to my apartment, told my roommate, I was like, hey man, I'm gonna kinda go lay, lay down upstairs. The next morning I woke up, I couldn't get out of bed. And to make a very long story short, over the next two weeks, I completely deteriorated. Um, you know, I was at the point where I could get in and go to the hospital, but I had to like have the nurses. This is back in the Wild West days where you could just sort of get anything you needed at the pharmacy. You know, I'd get nurses or residents to inject Tordal into me, which is a really strong mm-hmm. NSAID. I could only sleep if I laid in an L shape over the nurse's station. Um, and it just wasn't getting any better. And then one day, it the pain changed immediately. I realized in retrospect what happened. A herniated disc had fragment had broken off. So the pain in my back dissipated. But now I had this what turned out to be a four centimeter fragment sitting on my S1 nerve root. So now it felt like my left foot was being skinned from the bottom. But that was constant. So that was an unrelenting pain. And it could only be sort of brought under control if I could put my foot into a bag of ice because then I could make my foot go numb and then I could take some pain medicine. So this went on for another week and then the dean of the medical school saw me limping through the hospital. He said, what's wrong? And I told him and he dragged me down to the ER. We got an MRI that showed all of this and I was in surgery the next morning. Um, This was a Sunday night. Monday morning, I'm in the OR. It turned into a disaster. The guy who operated on me operated on the wrong side. So I woke up. The left issue was still present, but now I had what's called a foot drop on the right side. So foot drop is when the nerve that holds your foot up, which we take for granted when we walk, but if you don't have the ability to what's called dorsiflex, um, your foot would drop. You can't walk. You'll end up dragging your toe when you keep tripping. This story, I mean, we could spend three hours on the story because it's so idiotic. The, The punchline is I eventually needed many trips back to the operating room. This guy refused to believe there was anything wrong with me. It took another amazing doctor, a neurologist, to actually intervene on my behalf. And three months later, I'm unable to walk. I'm unable to do anything. My mom actually had to fly down from Toronto to look after me. Um, And I'm sort of, you know, you go through the the checklist, right? So so there's, I don't know if you've ever heard of Elizabeth uh, Kubler-Ross. I don't think she's alive anymore, but she wrote a very famous book on the stages of dying. And it goes through like anger and denial and finally acceptance mm-hmm. at the end, right? And so, it, you know, bargaining, like it, right. it's something that would right. make sense if you, yeah. and, and I'm sure you've I, I've watched, heard of that before. Yeah, yeah. And you've probably watched it on really small scales. Yeah. You know, like in combat, you might see I, these things I, over I've the course seen it of compressed and yeah. dealt and, with it. Yeah. And with a cancer patient, you might see this stretched out over a year. And so I was kind of going through this on my own, right? Where initially it was like, oh my God, what if I don't finish this rotation I'm doing right now, what's called a surgical sub-internship, to, oh, well, what if I don't graduate on time, to, what if I can't be a surgeon? And then it was, what if I don't walk ever again? Um, So somewhere along the way, and I don't remember exactly when, probably like a month and a half into this, I finally caved in and started taking pain medicine. I thought that's where the story was going. I was like, at some point, he's going to get on the opiates. <laughs> yep. And I had been so reluctant to do so initially, been so stoic, you know, just taking my NSAIDs and um, <clears throat> even using Benadryl, which is a horrible pain medication, of course, but it sedates you through some of the pain. And so I, you know, I started taking Percocet. And Percocet is. Um, 
It's typically 10 milligrams of oxycodone. So oxycodone is the fast-acting version, and it's stronger than, say, a Vic. So a Vicodin is Tylenol and hydrocodone, immediate-acting, but hydrocodone is not as strong as oxycodone. So Percocet is stronger than Vicodin. They both have Tylenol. It's just the opiate is stronger. And so, you know, if you take a Percocet, which would have 500 milligrams of Tylenol and 10 milligrams of oxycodone, you know, I probably was taking, you know, you start taking two, three, four, five, six of those a day, you develop a tolerance. And eventually, you, you, there's a, a longer acting version called OxyContin, which is just a time-released version of oxycodone. So then you would take that twice a day. So at my peak, I was probably taking 80 milligrams of OxyContin a day, plus another 120 milligrams of oxycodone. I just got rid of the Tylenol altogether. You can just get straight oxycodone. And so I'm about 200 milligrams a day of oxycodone equivalent. And again, if, you know, if I took that today, I would just die. You just stop breathing. But at the time, you know, you build up this tolerance. But it also, there was this point where I realized that I wasn't just taking it for the physical pain, right? And I think this is the single most important insight I had that when coupled with reading that book six months later was the... I think the single most important realization I ever had with respect to to this problem, which was at some point it was I was just so depressed that I couldn't walk and I was so worried that you know I'd never be able to do anything again that at least the drug gave me a high that took me away from that. And so then it got to the point where I was just taking that drug all the time and I just stopped engaging, like wasn't engaged with anyone anything. Um and then I sort of had this realization that that was happening. And I was like, I, I want to stop. So at the time I was dating um, this girl, she was an anesthesiology resident. She was a few years older than me, Re- just the coolest, coolest person. And I said to her, she was kind of the only one that knew what was going on. Because at the time, even the doctors who were prescribing this, like this just wasn't on people's radar as a problem back then. I think today right. people would be like, Homeboy's got 200 milligrams of Oxycontin a day. That's probably not good. But at the time, it was just like, it was like Tic Tacs, right? So that would legitimately kill, like, if I took 200 milligrams, would that, that would really jack someone up? I would think, I think if I took 200 today, I would stop breathing. Yeah, because that's how opiates kill you. They repress, they, they inhibit respiratory drive. That's what, whenever, whenever someone overdoses on heroin, yeah. they just stop breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think 200 would, I don't know, we'd have to. I'd have to look at the farm. We don't have to actually. I'll just take your word for it on this one. Um, So the girl you're dating, she she said you can't just stop, right? You the withdrawal is so painful that you have to taper off. You have to probably go on methadone, and then you'd have to start some pretty potent antidepressants, um, like MAOIs or TCA. So you have to go on a drug like nortriptyline, which is in and of itself kind of a crazy thing. And I was like, yeah, but I think I'm just going to stop cold turkey. Now, unlike alcohol, so if you took an alcoholic, you know, you took someone who's drinking 20 alcohol, you know, alcoholic beverages a day, and they've been doing that forever, and you stop them, they will die. They will get something called delirium tremens, and they will die a horrible cardiac death. They will break into arrhythmias, and they will die. So when we had alcoholics in the hospital, let's say we had to operate on somebody who happened to be an alcoholic. We would actually just put them on an ethanol IV. We weren't even trying to detox them. We just wanted to make sure they didn't die and go into these delirium tremens. 
But but heroin, an opiate, is not like that. It is not physiologically lethal to stop cold turkey. It's just unbearable. And so I was like, I'm going to do it. So against her better judgment, I just stopped one day. And she could not have been more right. It was the darkest. I mean, I can laugh about it now. It was the darkest month of my life. It was a month? Oh, at least. I mean, it was, I would just sit on a park bench for the whole afternoon. Like, complete flat affect. But it's all mental? It's not a physical thing? No, there's physical stuff going on. I mean, but but no, it's, it's yeah, you're, you know, you, you sort of, like, you know, opiates make you itch like crazy. You get constipated. So there's like a reversal of a whole bunch of physical stuff. But the biggest thing is the craving and the depression. Um, and so the depression of coming off this thing was brutal. Um, in many ways, and I don't tell that story to say, well, look at how special I am that I detox. That's not the point at all. I had two things going for me that virtually no junkie has going for them, right? The first is I didn't have a network of people around me that were doing the same thing. So I was sort of the only guy doing it. So for me to go and be around my friends was to be around people who weren't doing this. We always used to joke that if you really want to kick a heroin habit, you have to get a whole bunch of new friends. Like you, you don't get to decide you're not doing heroin and then go back and hang with your friends that are doing heroin. You need to watch train spotting to learn that. The second thing, and perhaps the more important thing, is I finally did connect with a doctor who was able to put me on the right path. So I, I had ended up going back to the operating room probably half a dozen times over the course of the year to have the, the, all these problems corrected. And then I found something else to fixate on, which was physical therapy. So I started to, you know, even though it didn't seem like exercise, it wouldn't seem like exercise today. At the time, it was the first activity I was able to do. And so, you know, within six months, I could like walk like a reasonable distance again. And I, so I would be spending three hours a day at physical therapy just doing like the most trivial exercises. But basically the root cause of my depression was getting better. So that's really the only reason I think I was able to kind of detox off this stuff. Whereas I think for many people, A, it's not clear what the root cause is or B, it's not getting better if it is clear. And so that's why I think it's really, it's a, it's a brutal addiction. And it seems like also you you had a, a future. Right, you had a life. You were in medical school. You're gonna, you, you know, you're gonna yes, do something. Had, Whereas I, a lot of these people that are drug addicts, what do they? They have no life that they're looking forward to. They're I, just looking forward to absolutely. nothing. And so, in February of that senior year, when I had to submit my rank list, I think we match in March. I misspoke earlier. I was still not functional perfectly. Like there was no way in February of 2001 that I could have withstood a surgical residency. But I had to make a decision at that point which was, will I be ready on July 1st? And if I won't be, I should not submit my rank. I should defer a year, sit out a year of medical school, whatever. And I remember that was the hardest decision I had to make. And I just gambled. I was like, you know what? I'm going to be ready and I'm going to make it happen no matter what. And so I submitted, matched. And then in addition to now reading the corner to prepare for Baltimore and reflecting on my own sort of struggle with addiction, which was completely fresh in my mind, I'm also like rehabbing like it's my day job and going through like, and I, most people take the last quarter of med school off, but I didn't have the ability to do that now because I had to, I had to go straight through till graduation day because I'd missed so much time during my injury. Um, so when I showed up in Baltimore a couple of days before July 1st, I mean, it still wasn't crystal clear to me that I could go, you know, 
two days without sleeping, stand in an OR for eight hours at a time, all those sorts of things. Uh, now, that's one of the things, you, the sleep deprivation, because people always, obviously, I take a lot of flack because <laughs> I don't sleep a lot, and and the sleep deprivation. So what did that look, what's that like when you're going through residency? And you're just saying, I mean, you, there's days where you're going 24, 48 hours, no sleep, and how did that affect you? What did you think of that? What do you think looking back at it? What's your opinion of it now? Well, you know, when I decided <clears throat> that that I was going to go into surgery, I mean, I, I always, I'm, I'm pretty uh, insecure in general. Most people don't necessarily appreciate that on the outside, but always thinking, I don't know if I've got what it takes here. How do I figure it out? And and so my, my whole MO in life is test the system hard. So when I was in medical school, still deciding this, I figured, well, Every Thursday night, I'm going to pull an all-nighter in my room, standing up, not allow myself to eat, sleep, drink, pee, do anything, and I'm going to stand at my desk for eight hours and practice suturing. You know, sort of try to mimic what it would be like to be in an operating room all night, not being able to go pee, not being able to drink, not being able to do this thing. And so I had a little bit of confidence. You know, I figured, okay, I can do this. Like, I can pull an all-nighter once a week. That's, you know... Not that that's a good thing to do, but it was like kind of a confidence thing. Right. So then you show up, but there's no preparing you for what you're in store for. Mm -hmm. Now, it, I got to point out, this is not the way it is anymore. So in 2000, I want to say like four. Um, it's almost the, like labor laws came in. Exactly. <laughs> they, a whole bunch of laws came in that we could spend hours talking about how it turns out the laws haven't, they haven't fixed the underlying root problem, but nevertheless... Uh, a whole bunch of work requirement hours stuff got fixed, right? So you couldn't work more than 80 hours in a week or 88, depending on if your program had an exemption. And you couldn't work more than 24 hours consecutively and stuff like that. But by the time those laws really kicked in, I was already gone. And, and so I don't really know what it's like today, but I would imagine it's, um, it's less demanding from a sleep deprivation standpoint. But at the time, there were no such rules, and you were at the sort of every second, every third, or every fourth night call, but then your post-call day, you would still work. So our mutual friend, Kirk Parsley, which of course is how we met, this is one of his favorite stories about me. <laughs> he loves this story, because it's so crazy. So this is July of 2001. So I am one month into being a doc, right? And I'm on an every third night call rotation at this hospital called Bayview, which is about five miles from what we call the mothership, which is Hopkins. And it's out in like East Baltimore. It's in a real crappy part of town. Not that there's a real, I mean, I hate saying this, but I don't, there are not that many good parts of town, at least back then in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I'm, uh, so I show up on a Monday at five o'clock in the morning so I, I slept in my own bed Sunday night. So Monday morning, I show up at five to round. We do our whole thing. And that night, I'm supposed to go home. So that's my off call. That's called your swing day. You show up at five. You'll be home by 7 p.m. that night if all goes well. So you worked your you know 14 hours. And then you sleep in your own bed. And then you get to come back the next day. And then you're going to be on call. So, at the, so we're rounding that afternoon. So and the... Uh, one the, the, the one of the senior residents says, "Hey, so and so didn't show up for their shift in the ER. The, the ER always staffs one surgical resident full time. 
And this guy just didn't show up. And she's like, and it's a 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. shift. Can you cover it? And, you know, this would be like if you asked the most junior guy, you know, to do something. Like, he, he, he'd he be kicking his own ass to say yes. Like, he couldn't wait to do that, right? So I was like, hell yes, I will do that. <laughs> so then I go down to the ER, and I work all night, 7 to 7. And then the next morning is now my on-call day. So now I'm 7 a.m., cranking away until that night. And then I'm up all night on call. So... And then it's now Wednesday, and it's my post-call day, and I'm there till 5 or 6 p.m. So I've basically been up from about 4 a.m. Monday, and it's now 5 or 6 p.m. Wednesday. And I get in my car to drive home, and I have to make it, I have to go down this miserable street called Eastern Avenue to hit the 83 to drive up to my place. And um, I'm driving along Eastern Avenue, which is like, red light after red light after red light or stop sign or whatever. And every time I'm at a stoplight, I fall asleep, my foot pops off the clutch and I stall. <laughs> like I am so tired. I can't even, you know, handle like the gradual, you know, easing off the clutch and the gas just to move up and up and up. I can't do it. So finally, in one moment of lucid clarity, I'm like, you can't get on the freeway. You're going to die. So I was like, what's the solution? I was like, you got to get over and take a nap. So I pull over my car on the side of Eastern Avenue right in front of this park called Patterson Park, which at the time, I don't think I fully understood that that was an open air drug traffic market. <laughs> so I got out. But here's the best part. Sorry. The logical thing to do would have been just been stayed in the car and take a nap. But I was like, you know, I haven't seen the sunlight in like days and it's the sun is still out. Like, I'm going to go nap in the park. So I get out of the park. I'm in green scrubs that are covered in, you know, blood stains because I was too dumb to not change. I go lay down in the park. I take my pager off and I clip it to my neck and I set the alarm to like go off in one hour. You know, so at like 7 p.m. it'll wake me up and I'll feel perfectly rested and I'll be able to drive home. So I lay down in middle of Patterson Park. And the next thing I know I wake up, it's like 1 in the morning, 2 in the morning. <laughs> There's needles everywhere. There's, I have like a bites on my arm that look like they're from rats because they're like nothing I've ever seen before, like these bites all over me. And I'm just thinking to myself like, how did I not get killed here? Like it, the only thing that prevented me from dying was how ridiculous the sight was. Yeah. You know, if something's so strange, like not, yeah. you know. So I was like, God damn it, man. So I get back in my car and drove home. And when I tell Parsi that story, he loves it because he's like, that's the classic example of how complete deprivation of sleep impairs your judgment. Um, so, you know, there were a couple stories in residency where I had to do like those three night back to back to backs. Another time it happened, I remember, was in 05. Did you feel like, though, okay, driving a car is kind of boring, right? Stoplights. But when you're really tired, but then all of a sudden something happens, like, boom. I feel like when that happens, sure. I feel like I can lock on. It, there's almost no amount of sleep deprivation that will stop me from functioning and getting something done that's important on task on time. Absolutely, is that true? Does that true I think for so, you? Yeah, too? no. I think I think an adrenaline rush in the moment right. can provide any amount of clarity and focus that's necessary. The problem is very few things are life or death that way. Now, in your world, there were plenty of things, but in my world, not. And this is the other story I was going to tell was in uh, probably my third year. Uh, I think it was my third year. Um, 
I was same same sort of deal. I ended up covering for somebody and then covering for two people and two consecutive nights, and then it was my turn. So that was like three straight nights of not sleeping. And it's the middle of the night, and this guy comes in the ER who's, you know, got a really diseased gallbladder. And in retrospect, it should have never come out that night. But a lot of times, the dirty little secret is surgeons want to operate at night because they can get better OR time electively as opposed to waiting the next day if it's not emergent. So sure enough, we're in the middle of the operating room doing a laparoscopic gallbladder removal at 2 in the morning when we don't really need to be there at 2 in the morning. We could have slept and done it the next day. Um, and sure enough, so so in, a lap, in removing the gallbladder is a two-surgeon procedure. So there's the main surgeon, which because we're at a teaching hospital, I'm the main surgeon. I'm actually doing the operation. And then there's the attending who's holding the camera and retracting for me. So I'm, you know, like I'm doing this. And yeah, that's a stimulating activity. But of course, I've done a hundred of them. So it's not that stimulating. Well, I can't stay awake. And I finally somehow managed to fall asleep on this patient. Like I face plant into the patient. Wow. Luckily, it was laparoscopic. So I didn't contaminate the surgical. But so even something as stimulating as surgery. Right. Because, look, if the guy's aorta was bleeding, right, right. I'm you sure I would have. Ste- yeah, exactly. But, but in all you're doing is pulling out, pulling, his, gallbladder. Yeah. pulling out his gallbladder is no big thing. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't stimulating enough to overcome three days of sleep debt. Did you do, did you figure out any tricks, any, you know, for instance, I can, t- I, when, when I was going through SEAL training and even my, my whole career and even to this day, I take these, I take little power nuts. If, if I'm feeling that tired, I elevate my feet and I sleep for like six to eight minutes and it totally recharges me. Did you, do you take power naps? No. <laughs> Aside from your power nap yeah, at yeah, park yeah. that lasted seven <laughs> hours and almost got you killed. <laughs> I did. I once took a power nap in my car. Again, same thing. I was like, it was like eight o'clock at night. I got to the pool. I had a rule, which was after you left the hospital, you never went home because I knew if I went home, I wasn't going to leave. So I would always go from the hospital to the gym or the pool or whatever I was doing. And on this particular night, I get there. It's 8 o'clock at night. I am so tired. I'm nauseous. Like the thought. So of, you didn't want to go home just because you knew you'd go I'd home and go asleep. to sleep? I'd fall and asleep. you didn't want to go to sleep because you've been awake for three days? Why didn't you want to, why, why, why didn't you want to go and fall asleep? Well, because I, you know, it's really funny. A good friend of mine who, again, a couple of years ahead of me, gave me interesting advice. Whether it was right or wrong, I don't know. He said, look, you're going to be tired no matter what in residency don't stop doing all the other things in your life because you'll still be tired. Now, I don't know that that was the right advice, but I took it I, to I heart. I that advice. And actually. my view was, I'm going to continue to work out every day I'm not on call. I'm going to you know, do all the stuff I want to do. And unfortunately, sleep always took the brunt of it. So yeah, so it would be to the pool. And so same thing, I got there. But on this particular night, I was so tired. I was so nauseous. Like I couldn't suppress the desire to vomit. And I was like, I'm not going to, I can't, if I puke in the pool, they'll kick me out. I won't get to swim. It's just not going to be worth it. So I was like, just sit here for like 30 minutes and take a quick nap. So same thing. Took the pager out, which normally could wake me up, clip it here. And it was freezing because it was like the winter. So I left. No, it wasn't cold, but I remember I wanted to leave the radio on like a dumbass. So the car is off. So alternator's off. Radio's on. What well, you know how the story ends. I wake up at two in the morning. Battery's dead. I'm in the middle of the parking lot. I can't. You know, <laughs> had to call my girlfriend to get jumper cables to get me out. That's a one. That girlfriend went on to become my wife, by the way. Um, so, short answer: No, I didn't have a great strategy. I did have a friend who, and I never tried this, but he told me he would put coffee grounds in his eyelids. And apparently, it hurt so much that you couldn't close your eyes. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, that's. A, I mean, I would not that, but I've told people this all the time too. You know, do do a little bit of physical exercise if you're super tired. That definitely picks you back up. Mm-hmm. There's got to be some reality or some scientific reason for that happening. So that's another thing you can do. But um, so you were so okay. We know it sucks. You're not sleeping, and you're dealing with these patients. And and how do you start to detach from this reality that's around you so you're not getting, you know, because you, you, you said already you like the kind of the emotional involvement with people, but then at the same time you said it didn't take long before you despise these patients that are coming in because they're interrupting your sleep and bothering you. That's got to be a crazy balance to try and strike as a human being. I mean, human beings are not meant to be dealing with 16 puncture wounds a day. That's that's not right. So what what happens in your brain? What happened in your mind? What did you notice about your mentality in this whole business as time went on? Well, what I noticed, so again, not everybody becomes jaded, but most people do. And where where my sense of jaded developed was actually towards, you know, the patients with diabetes, the patients who had complications from being overweight, like when those people would show up with, you know, the abscess in their foot in the middle of the night that needed to be debrided, those people I would get, again, pretty pissed at. Amazingly, the, the what we, you know, these these trauma folks, like I kind of always maintained a soft spot in my heart for them, and interestingly, you know, it's 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 easy it, once they die. So, so what happens is, like, let's say a guy comes in, guy's been shot. Um, you know, generally people who are dead in the field don't make it in. So, so, but but sometimes there's this gray zone where you know someone comes in who's basically dead, but because they had a little bit of a pulse on the way in the door, like we're gonna do everything we can. But a lot of times when those patients die, like the room has to be turned over really quickly, which means. Someone's got to come in, take the body, put it in a body bag, gather everything, because usually these are criminal investigations, so the police are there. The housekeeping staff has to come in and mop all the blood off the floor, because depending on where the gunshot wound was, like gunshot wound to the head, for example, tons of blood, um, because the head's a confined space. Um, And in that moment, it's really easy to just immediately walk out the door. But I find myself, you know, I'd, I'd sometimes like flip through their wallets, right? And... You know, invariably, you'd see something like you'd see a picture of a little kid. So you you see this guy who's huge, who's just been killed. He's probably 25. And you'd see like this six-year-old girl in his wallet. And you, you, you know, you'd start to sort of wonder what the narrative is, right? Like, was that his daughter? Probably. Did he know her? Probably. Did she know him? Maybe not. Like, you just don't know. And all of a sudden, that's, that, that's, that stuff sort of humanizes these, these guys. And, and again, I think because of my own understanding of what they were dealing with, because of those 16 penetrating traumas, 15 had to be drug involved in one way or another. Um, and so everybody who we're taking care of, for the most part, was some part of the cycle that's being described in the corner. Now, occasionally it wouldn't be. I mean, one of the examples that stands out that was, I would say, sort of like the top five saddest things I ever saw in residency was July 1st, 2002. I just happened to remember that day. And this girl on her 16th birthday came in and she was just she was just hit by a stray bullet in her neighborhood. It was her 16th birthday, stray bullet from, you know, unrelated gang violence hit her in the head. And, you know, she's an example of someone who came in basically dead but in situations like that, like you, you know, I'm sure you can relate to this. You're just going to do something that's so 
beyond heroic. You want to do anything and everything to try to save her. And of course we couldn't. So, you know, those examples are kind of rare, but the majority of the times it's, you know, executions for people who stole money. Um, that's those, those would be hard to see, right? Cause you can, these are, you know, this is like, this is a deadly game. Oh, and even the, even the girl, the 16 year old girl, she's part of the cycle too, because that's just a stray bullet. That's, that's right. She's in a, na- she's in a lousy neighborhood. You can almost guarantee that, you know, if she's living in where she's living to get hit by a stray bullet, like, you know, yeah, she wasn't living in, you know, Roland park. And when, once you, did you, would you ever see any family? Would any family ever come in? Yeah, so there's two types of things going on, right? So, so the the biggest problem we would have would be real gang on gang stuff, because it became sort of a feed forward loop, right? So if one guy came in and he was killed, you immediately knew the floodgates were going to open because there was going to be retaliation that night. I don't remember the, the police were pretty good about trying to make sure that like when someone came in and who was killed, like if you weren't immediate family, you were not allowed there. Um, And they also tried to create a little bit of a delay in letting that information out. Again, maybe that wasn't the the, the most considerate thing to do, but their view was trying to let the violence dissipate. Um, Yeah, the family stuff's hard. I mean, the hardest family interaction I ever had was with a, was with a actually a blunt trauma and it wasn't involving drugs at all. Right. This was a, this was a, um, a boy, he was 15 years old. He and his brother, his older brother, who was probably 18, had picked him up after school. They were driving home, and they were they had the right of way. And a guy ran a red light and t-boned them on the passenger side. And this, the 15 year old boy, both of them came in as separate traumas, but the older boy came in as an adult trauma. So he went to the adult side. I happened to be on pediatric surgery, like I was the uh, senior resident on pediatric surgery that month. So I ran the pediatric trauma, which is where the 15 year old came in. And it turned out the older, the driving son was fine. He didn't have a scratch on his body, but this kid came in basically dead on arrival, though it wasn't clear why, but his pupils were blown. Um, you know, a little bit of a pulse. We did, you know, probably 30 minutes of everything imaginable before accepting the reality that he'd sheared his aorta. So if a, a high enough force can actually shear the aorta and it dissects and you basically bleed to death inside the wall of the aorta and that's why he died. And that was another example of how everybody just sort of scatters after that. But, you know, his mom is in a waiting room wondering where her boys are who, you know, could have been an offender bender for all she knows. So th- those were... I mean, unquestionably the most difficult discussions ever because trauma is the one area where there's complete surprise. Like, you know, it's tragic when somebody dies from cancer. It's even tragic when somebody dies during an elective surgical operation, which happens, unfortunately, from time to time. But at least there you have some heads up that something dangerous is going on. But this kid, like, you know, said goodbye to his mom that day, went to school and never came back. And now she hears, oh, he's in a car accident and she's in the hospital never imagining that he could be dead. And then you have to be the guy that goes in and say, you know, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but your son is dead. You know, there's actually a really interesting article written in the New York Times on this exact topic um, by, 
So it's kind of an interesting story. So my mentor in medical school, to this day, one of the closest mentors I've ever had is a guy by the name of Steve Rosenberg. So Steve Rosenberg is the chief of surgery at the National Cancer Institute. Um, and he's kind of one of the luminaries in immunotherapy. So I did my postdoc with him uh, at the NIH. And uh, I actually spent time there in medical school. And actually, he just called me yesterday out of the blue. We ended up having a great catch up for 30 minutes. His daughter, he has three daughters. His youngest daughter is Naomi Rosenberg, who's uh, a resident at, in, I think she's an emergency room doc at Penn, which is also in a war zone in Philly. And she wrote a great piece on this, uh, which maybe we could link to in the notes or something. Um, it's probably like the last three months about the difficulty of having to communicate to families when tragedies like this happen, which of course you you know she would see a lot of as well in Philly. Hmm. And then that happens, so you do everything you can to save this kid's life, and then you walk in, you face the mother. You drop the most devastating possible imaginable news on her. And you got to go back to work. I mean, right? I mean, don't you then have to? It, it isn't? Don't you have to go work again now? Yeah, that that night in particular, that was, you know, that was that was. Um, I, I remember that day pretty well. That was April of two thousand three, um, when that boy died, and um, by the time. You know, by the time we had declared time of death and I had gone to talk to his mom, it was probably like 10 o'clock at night. You know, I probably spent an hour with her. And of course, it's disruptive because you're in there and your pager's going off. I've got the ER calling me about this kid and I've got the ICU calling me about this. And, you know, um, and she's, you know, I mean, like, I, I don't I, I, God, I sure hope I never have to know what she went through because I can't can't really imagine. Right. I mean, she's hysterical at a level that you just like a movie doesn't do justice to that. Like you don't see that level of hysteria normally. Um, and I, I, that that was certainly like one of kind of the three or four that really upset me the most. I mean, I, I had a real hard time. Get, and I think I got lucky that night. I think that at night ended up being a pretty calm night. I remember I got to probably spend some time just alone in a call room that evening, you know, and, and for me, that was a, the, so the, this is the awful thing here is we tend to project what's going on in our own life into any situation. I mean, I, I think I realized that pretty early. And so I think in the case of that particular trauma, I saw in that boy, my brother, my younger brother. And so I, so I was dealing with two things in that moment. One was, um, meaning from my own end, not, not, not the immediate issue, which is this boy died. One is I'm imagining now, like this could have been me and my brother in high school. Like this, this could have been us and how, how your life changes after that. Like I thought his brother's life is never going to be the same. Um, the second was, this was already after I had decided to leave medicine altogether, um, which was in June of 2006. And this, this trauma was like April of 2006. I had decided in March of that year that I was just going to finish that year and then leave. So, so the other thing that was sort of that I was struggling with, which probably makes this a little heavier than it needed to be, was as painful as this is, it's a privilege to be this person. It's a privilege to be the guy who gets to try to save a life. And even when you fail, that interaction you're going to have with that family, which I think is something Naomi wrote about in that piece, it's so important. It seems trivial to us because you have that interaction over and over and over again, but to that family, it's so important. 
that will be with them forever. Mm-hmm. And I think I felt that I felt that that was a privilege. And so I think I realized like I'll never do this again. I'll never again have that privilege to even if I fail to to try to you know sort of save somebody to actually then be able to um, comfort that family. And and that sounds really weird, and it's a very morose sort of thought to have. But all of those things, I think, in that particular example, um, you know, made for a really difficult uh, set of you know days and weeks that followed. I went to his funeral. It was the first patient I ever went to a funeral of, a first trauma patient. Certainly went to the funerals of patients you got to know through you know people who were dying of cancer and stuff. But you know, trauma patient, like you just wouldn't think to go to someone's funeral that you'd never known. Because like I'd never known the boy, right? Um, I stayed in touch with his mom for a few years, and not surprisingly, their life just completely fell apart. You know, does it does it make it that much worse that you got this? You juxtapose the the kind of this normal kid, right, who dies this random accident, and then at the same time, every night you're you've got people that are killing each other. And you're dealing, and you're seeing the results of that, and you can't do anything about it. How does it, does that also play into your your thoughts about, hey, I'm here trying to save these people's lives, and they're out there killing each other for over nothing, over the street corner, over this, over that. Did you go down that road mentally? Not there. I'll tell you the one time I felt really ethically, maybe ethically is too strong a word, but just to be blunt, I mean, the one time I was really pissed off that I was trying to save somebody's life was a guy that came in who killed his wife, killed his daughter, and then put the gun in his under his chin and pulled the trigger and missed. So he basically blew off the side of his face and was still alive. His brain was completely intact. This guy was going to survive after 23, you know, face operations. And, you know, I'm taking care of this guy in the ICU and I'm kind of pissed off about it actually, right? And, and maybe I shouldn't be, right? Who am I to judge this guy? But I'm like, you know, you killed your wife, you killed your kid and you wanted to die. Why the hell am I putting anything into you? Now, of course, that is a slippery slope. Because in medicine, we're never supposed to play that role, right? We're never, we never play God, right? People, you know, some doctors want to act like they're playing God, but we never play God. We're just there to do a job. And on that day, I remember thinking, I don't want to do this job. I don't want to, I don't want to take care of this guy. I want this guy to die, actually. How do they, how do they, how do they address that when you're going to medical school? That whole idea. They've got it covered on, or is it just... So underlying the, the underlying theme of everything you do that by the time you get done, you're it's there. Well, that's a that's a really good question. I, I don't know are there the answer. Ethic, are there ethic cla- ethics you know, classes in medical school that teach you that? I am sure there are. I, the fact that I can't tell you one thing about an ethics class I took tells you it that whatever ethics you have are going to be independent of whatever class you're taking. And who knows, you know, today, you know, these pendulums swing from one end to the other. For all I know, you know, half the curriculum could be ethics today. I, I don't know. But but the short answer is, I think, you know, it's it's sort of internal. And, and the reality of it is, you know, if you're in a good program, and the one thing I'll say, I mean, as much as Hopkins was a brutal place to exist, the camaraderie there was unbelievable. I mean, 
you know, the nickname for the residents was the Halstead Marines, right? <laughs> Which, again, doesn't do justice to real Marines, but that was sort of the camaraderie, right? It was like you would do anything for your res- – you know, that's why you'd always volunteer to stay up three nights to help somebody else out. And so, you know, I had really great friends there. In fact, to this day, like some of my closest friends, people that I'm in touch with almost every day were, were guys I went through that experience with. And – you could talk about those things with each other, right? I mean, you know, it was it was okay to say, like, I really wish this motherfucker would die, because um, he's taking up a bed, he's costing the state a million bucks, and I hate him. Um, and I th- somehow being able to talk about that, I think, makes it a little bit easier, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, any that's what happens in the military. You get guys that go through tough situations, tough battles, and they obviously they become closer going through it. And part of the, the thing that brings them close together is you're talking about what's going on as it's happening and after it happens. What did you... So a, a lot of times in this this podcast, I say that this podcast, yeah, we talk about war and we talk about leadership and we talk about history, but I find that the actual root of what the podcast becomes about is is really about human nature and, and what people what human beings are like was there I'll give you both sides of this question did you learn anything about people about human nature there that was surprisingly positive and before you answer that one did you learn anything about human nature while you were there that was surprisingly negative So, so I'll give you one thing that I learned that I don't know that I would call positive or negative, but it was an observation that in retrospect seems obvious, but it never would have, I never would have thought of it before. And to this day, it still serves me well to understand it. So the, obs- the fir- this is the first observation is that um, when you look at a significant illness, like a, 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 a completely disruptive insult, you know, cancer, you, you know, you have pancreatic cancer, which means you're going to die and you're going to die soon. Um, there are two types of families that come into that situation. So families that show up already fractured, get blown apart. Fractures that families that show up already tight become the tightest of any family. The same would be true when you see, you know, a kid that comes in you know, a burn victim, right? This kid that gets burned badly on the 4th of July and this kid's going to spend the next two months in the hospital. Um, You know, a a, a couple that comes in with tension already in their marriage, they get splintered wide open. If they came in and everything was fine, they're going to be there for each other. They're going to be tighter. So, So that was an observation that I just saw over and over and over again. And I saw it in probably even more... um vivid color when I was at the NIH because the two years I was there, um, you know, I was mostly doing research, but you still had clinical responsibilities. And so, so you're, you're basically seeing patients who are coming to receive experimental therapy for cancer. So these are patients who are all, you know, otherwise going to die within six months. And most of them will still go on to die. Obviously, the, a subset of them we can help. But you're seeing that over and over again. So that was the first observation. And then the second was that there were just a couple of residents who... Um, I couldn't believe how amazing they could be, um, who, how, how they could never sort of do the wrong thing. 
So, so there, there were two residents in particular. One really, he was. I mean, he, he his name is Chris Sonnenday. He is now a uh, he's a transplant surgeon at the University of Michigan. Amazing guy. And so Chris was two years ahead of me, and I mean. He was like that guy that I would have done anything for. And I remember when I was leaving, thinking to myself, you know, I'm really glad I'm leaving because if I stayed, I'd know I could never be as good as Chris. Like that, like how can someone be this good? And I don't mean like he can sew this good and cut. I don't mean even medically. Good human being. Just as a, exactly, as a human being, he is on a level I can't get to and you know I don't know anybody else who can get there either but the fact that I can't get there is a little upsetting to me um, and I'm glad I don't have to spend the rest of my life chasing him <laughs> which of course Chris would never think of it that way because that's the nature of being that guy is you he's just completely humble modest unassuming guy who just happens to be a god you know, it's it's uh, going back to the first point that you mentioned, and it's something that I've heard people talk about as well. My buddies talk about is you know the the whole idea of post traumatic stress and all that, and and what war does to people. And one thing that I happen to agree with is pretty similar to what you're saying, and that is going into the war. Right, if the person is got a good stable mindset. Mm-hmm and a good attitude and is a positive person and they're going to come out of it with all those good positive things amplified they're going to be more positive they're going to be stronger they're going to be mentally tougher it's the people that go into it that are already somehow fractured those fractures are going to get worse Mm. through the trauma of combat again um, this is a broad generalization and there's definitely great guys that see things or do things that they that it, it hurts them and it takes them a while to get through it but there's also some guys you go, you know, that guy was messed up when we showed up and now he's worse and, it, and it's that pressure that opens up those fractures even, even wider. And it's interesting that you got to, you saw that with family structures as well. And I could completely see how that happens and that happens, right? That happens and you don't even need trauma to make that happen. I mean, you get the financial trauma on a family. If they're not tight, that'll, that'll make them blow up. Yeah. Whereas if they're tight, you know, going through some financial problems, they'll get tighter. They'll buckle down. They'll save money together. They'll skip the movies. They'll start, you know, they'll enjoy cooking ramen noodles together. So that trauma can can expose those fractures. That's why it's important to try and create the most solid foundation you can with your family and with your own mind so that when these traumas hit, you don't get fractured. Do the SEALs screen for that? They try to, but... Um, You'll like this story. So we had to take a psychological screening. This is in the 90s, so it wasn't like we were super advanced on any of this stuff. And I'm going, and when I was going through boot camp, they gave us a psychological screening for, for our attempt to go to, to SEAL training. And so they asked a bunch of questions, and it was complete the sentence questions. And so it, would, it was really obvious what would, what would flag you. And, for, and, and so I made every answer because uh, I was in boot camp and the food sucked. And so every answer that I gave was just all about food. So for instance, they'd, they'd say, complete this sentence. I hate when my mother, right? So it's, it's pretty easy to, to, to say, you know, I hate when my mother shuns me in front of my sisters and I want to kill her. No, 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 no. <laughs> all my answers were like, you know, I hate when my mother 
overcooks the steak and doesn't put enough pepper on it. You know, just like every answer I gave was about food. But it was really easy. My point is that it was really obvious. If you were not a complete, even if you were, if you, in fact, if you were a psychopath, you would very easily say, answer all the questions correctly and get through it. And there's been plenty of guys that made it through SEAL training that, you know, there's, there's some bad criminals. There's, uh, there's been a, a couple really heinous crimes committed by guys that were SEALs. And just, just they made it through. They got screened. So, yeah, they, they had a screening, but I wouldn't say it's the most effective. They've gotten better now, you know, and some of those guys that committed horrible crimes it you know kind of inspired the SEAL teams to step up that screening process as much as possible to make sure that we're not letting guys through that are that are deranged some way that are going to do something horrible like that. Um, you kind of already talked about these, but is there any other thing that that you learned about yourself? in that situation and and you i didn't really know too much about the uh where you went afterwards at the nih mm-hmm. if you want to go into that a little bit but what did you learn about yourself through this whole process obviously you learned something because at some point you decided you know what i, I don't want to i don't want to do this yeah i mean that's those are those are some of the the most interesting years of my life and i i'm pretty glad that i didn't have my first kid till i was 35 which on the one hand, you, you sort of think, well, God, I'm so old, you know, like I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be like the 50 year old grandfather. Right. Um, but on the other hand, I think it's a really good thing because when I think about what was going on in my mid to late twenties, you know, the, the sort of really difficult decisions I had to make, I mean, leaving medicine after being in it for 10 years was a really difficult decision, especially to go and do something that had nothing to do with medicine. I mean, when I left, I joined a consulting firm, McKinsey and Company, and I did credit risk modeling. Like I didn't have a thing. The fact that I was a doctor was like a liability. There was no, like it was like starting all over again in life. Um, So to get to that point, yeah, I had to go through a whole bunch of stuff. So I think, I mean, I I wouldn't even know where to begin. I mean, I think one thing I learned was, so this fellow that I alluded to earlier, Steve Rosenberg, who is, Again, to this day, probably one of the most important mentors in my life outside of family members. Um, Just an amazing human being, right? So just kind of on another level. And I remember even asking him after being in his lab for two years, because remember, we had a couple of people in the lab who I just didn't think were that good. They really bugged me. Their existence bothered me. And I, you know, I finally, after being in the lab for two years, worked up the courage to ask him like how he, because he's like this guy who's going to win a Nobel Prize. Like he's changing the game. And yet we had a couple people that I kind of thought were bottom feeders. And I was like, you never get upset at them. Like ever. I've never seen you get upset at these people. How? And he said, you know, Peter, I just look at everybody and I figure out at least one thing that they can do well. And I just figure out a way to empower them to do that one thing, even if they can't do the 10 things that I would expect you to do. I remember thinking, I understand in theory what you're saying. I can't do that. I can't tolerate mediocrity. So that was a huge thing that I learned. Um, And it never really hit home again until I was running a nonprofit because, you know, there wasn't a lot of mediocrity at Hopkins. 
right? Mm-hmm. You sort of had your pick of the best residents right. there. Everybody there was the best at what they did. You had amazing nurses, amazing residents, amazing respiratory therapists. And like everybody there was like the best of their field, right? And then I go to McKinsey, same thing. You've kind of got the best of the best all over again. But, you know, fast forward five years, I'm now running a nonprofit. Well, all of a sudden, you don't get the best of the best anymore. You're, you're drawn from like the third pool. And I remember coming back to that, which is, you know what? You're probably not cut out to do this. You, you have two choices. Don't be a leader. Just be your own dude. Or be a leader, but only with A players. But this notion of like you have the capacity to mentor the C players and maybe turn them into a B plus player. Like I don't have those genes. I can't do it. <laughs> and, and not only that, like I will destroy the C player and, and I don't mean to, but I will bury them in the ground and, and become a horrible human to them. So, so I also realize, like I can be a really bad person. Um, if I don't, if I don't respect the work that someone's willing to do. So do you, did you, or do you ever have to find a counter to that? Because like if you were in the military and you and I were working together, I would be like, "Hey, Peter, you got to get, you got to get, you, you got to act like Rosen. What is it, Rosenberg? Yeah, Rosenberg yeah. You got to act like him because yeah. in the military you're not getting A players. Yeah. I mean, you got some great guys in the SEAL teams. You got some great guys that are studs. You got some okay guys that are in the middle. You got some losers down at the bottom. Guess what? You need every single one of them to go uh, on yeah, deployment with yeah. you, and they all got to give you what you everything they can. And the more you create conflict with them, and the more you are talking down to them, the less they're going to do. They're, they, you know how they're already a, a C level player or yeah, a D level player? They're going down. Yeah, they're going down. They're, you're not. You're not making them any better. So that's. Uh, did you ever try and correct that, or do you just go through and say, you know what, you've realized that that's like a weakness so of I want, yours? I want to be clear. There are two attributes that you can be a C player in, and I can cope with one, but I can't cope with the other, and I accept it fully. I can cope with someone who has a C plus intellect. So, so if you think about the intellect as the CPU of the computer, mm-hmm. I don't need everybody to have the fastest CPU. I accept the fact that like we all have different sort of innate capacities to, to, to sort of process and do, and you know we all move at different speeds. I can cope with variability there. Where I cannot cope with variability, or maybe I've just chosen I don't want to, is I can't cope with variability on intent, work ethic, integrity. Like mm-hmm. when you are, if you can't be an A player there, I actually don't want you in my life anymore. And I think I'm old <laughs> enough now that I've just said, fuck it. You know, I'm not going to deal with it anymore. Life is too short and I'm not going to deal with C players who, who fail on those metrics. Right. Right. I, I don't care how smart you are, but if you can't show up and work your ass off, if you can't be honest, if you can't care, if you can't want to get better, I actually don't want you in my life. So you're right. I probably, I mean, I think I, I'm probably not cut out to be a leader because I can't take those people who are failing on those metrics and work with them. Well, you just need to be a leader of a very high performing team, not of a regular, <laughs> regular <laughs> team. Yeah. Yeah. It ne- I never had problems, right? So when I was a resident, you know, residency is very hierarchical, right? You know, you've got the med student, the sub I, the intern, the second year resident, the senior resident, the chief resident, the fellow, the attending. I mean, it's 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 as clear as day who's in charge at any moment in time. And as I'm going up through those ranks, for the most part, I never really had difficulty, you know, with the teams underneath me. But again, I had the luxury of being at Hopkins. Mm-hmm. Everybody there is the best. The med student, they're the best. The resident, they're the best. McKinsey, same thing. You know, you're dealing with the best of the best. But yeah, running a nonprofit, it was like a totally different world to me. 
And so I think the difference is a great leader could have succeeded in any environment. You know, they could have done it. They could have figured out, like, okay, the reason this person, like, acts like a lazy sack of shit is actually because of this. And you can, like, figure out a way to, like, touch them and help them out of that. And I was just like, yeah, I'm not doing it. <laughs> so that was so that's that's going back to NIH and you that was the first time you dealt with people you, you that's the first time I'd sort of seen in a long-term working environment like a couple people who weren't top agents and again maybe part of it's because you're in the government at that point mm-hmm. and you get some staff people there maybe who you know and, and part of it I think was just because Steve Rosenberg was such an amazing guy and he could get the best out of everybody that he might have just had a greater tolerance for that I think the second thing I learned was I would never be a world-class scientist. So when you go to NIH, you're really only going for one reason. I mean, I'm sure there's some people that go there just to check the box and say, I was at the NIH. That wasn't why I went. I went because Steve Rosenberg was my hero. When I was in medical school, I read his book called The Transformed Cell. And I was like, that book just now, that book, along with another book by a guy named Richard Feynman called Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, became kind of two of the most important books, you know, I read during, you know, my 20s. Um, and I actually wouldn't date somebody. I wouldn't date a girl until she read them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to, we're, we're going to go into a, after, after the podcast, you and I are going to go into a full, full on counseling session. <laughs> you need help. <laughs> So, uh, so, when, so I went to NIH right. because I was like, look, this, you know, <laughs> this guy is my God. And like, right. I want to be like that. Right. Mm-hmm. I want to be the best surgeon scientist that ever lived. And then I got there and I realized that surgery and science couldn't be more different. Surgery is the ultimate immediate gratification. <laughs> like surgery, you get to fix the problem in hours. Science is a lifetime of work, a lifetime of failure before success is. In fact, one of the most remarkable stories from Rosenberg's book, which of course I read while in medical school, but it wasn't until a decade later when I'm living it that I really understood why he was great and why I couldn't be great, was from when he arrived at NIH in 1974 until he really had his first success was about 10 years. So for 10 years, everything he was trying was failing. And every patient died. Every single person that showed up died. Until this one woman in 1984, when finally they figured out how to dose something called interleukin-2, and they finally sort of cracked the first piece of what has turned into a very long code that 30 years later, we're just starting to make really amazing traction on. Now, think about that for a second. 43 years ago, he started that job. For 10 straight years, he just lost. It's like, you're gonna go pay pickup every day for 10 years Mm -hmm. and lose every day. So what I realized was, actually, I don't have that intestinal fortitude. I cannot fail that frequently and still be at my best the next day. And again, I, I mean, I hate admitting that because it sounds awful. It sounds like I'm, I suck, and I guess I suck, but like I realized like, I could be good, meaning I could go after easier problems to solve where you can like, you know, get grants and, you know, just play the game. And that's frankly what most people do in this space. But if you wanna like change the game, if you want to 
change mankind, if you want to do something seminal, you have to be willing to fail forever. And I realized, like, I don't, I find that, again, it's not that I'm addicted to the win. It's not like, oh, I have to be told good boy, good boy, good boy. But I need some win. I need to know that I have some control over my fate. Whereas in surgery, you have some control over your fate. You know, there is a difference between being a good surgeon and being a bad surgeon. And it's not to say there's not a difference between being a good scientist and a great scientist. But in science, you are far less in control of what's going on than in surgery. Now, he must have had some long-term vision hypothesis that he absolutely was out did. there. Oh, he that did. he believed it. He laid it out. He said there are four things that have to be true if we're going to ever figure out a way to get the immune system to fight cancer. These four things have to be true. And if they're not true, the, immune, the human immune system will never be able to fight cancer. And it took 10 years just to figure out the first proof of concept in a human. So yes, they had a couple of successes mm-hmm. in mice where they had demonstrated, okay, like at least in mice you can do this. But in cancer biology, you know, you don't get terribly excited about doing stuff in mice for very long. You know, there's a really famous Italian uh, cancer biologist who once famously said, if you can't cure cancer in a mouse, you need a new profession. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's pretty low hanging fruit. You you got to be able to do it in people. So, at the, it was while you were there that you decided you weren't didn't want to go into medicine anymore. No, you want to so then medicine? it gets complicated, right? So then oh, no, I decided you were, still, you were still I was still in, in the, the midst trauma. of my residency. So what I so then I went back to Hopkins to finish my surgical training. But then I decided, you know what? I think I might actually go into cardiac surgery, which I'd always been interested in. So when I was in medical school, I was really torn between cancer surgery and cardiac surgery. And, um, you know, to, to go into cancer surgery, I think the real focus is going to be on research. Like you want to, you know, you have to be involved in science and, and surgery. Whereas I thought in cardiac surgery, you know, it's just pretty much the coolest surgery. Like it's the most technically demanding surgery by far. Um, I shouldn't say by far. I mean, I think there are other things that are probably on par technically, but I was like, I also came back in the mindset of, you know what, I'm just going to become like a great technician, right? I just... And I loved operating. I mean, the heart is, in one sense, the simplest organ in the body. Like, it's really simple to understand what it's doing. You know, unlike the brain or the liver, where it's just like 10 layers of complexity. Like, we kind of know what's going on with the heart. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to operating on it, you know, it's all a mechanical problem. Like, you know, oh, this valve doesn't work. Oh, this pipe doesn't work. Oh, this thing doesn't work. Um, but that was sort of my concession of, well, you know what? You don't have to be the best surgeon scientist. Why don't you just be the best surgeon? Um because there you're more in control, right? right that's right. that's now just a function of how hard can, do you want to work, um, and that was that was that was sort of right up my alley. And so then, how did that path then drift to you don't want to do any of this anymore? You know, I think over the next couple of years, I mean, just a couple of things changed. I mean, one was, you know, I wasn't getting frustrated with these patients that we were talking about earlier. It wasn't the trauma patients that were getting to me. There was something else that was getting to me that was much more frustrating, which was the entire system. It seemed like everything we did was this last ditch effort to put incredible resources into a person's life at the very end. And we didn't really move the needle that much. Mm-hmm. Right. So hmm. it just seemed like a broken system. On the other end of the spectrum, there's something else that did strike me as broken, which actually contrasts or contradicts a little bit of what I said earlier. I did feel that there was a subtle difference in the quality of residents. So remember, there was this guy, Chris Sonnenday, who's like the best resident that ever lived. 
you know, I think I was a good resident. I think there were some other really good residents. But there were others that just, you know, they were good, but they weren't great. And the thing about residency that really bugged me, and I think part of this was I was watching my brother, who was a lawyer. So he came out of law school when I came out of medical school, like we were the same time. And so I start residency when he starts this law practice, or he joined like this law firm. And I remember seeing that it was a totally different world. Like, their promotions seemed more merit-based. Mm-hmm. Like, they went up the ranks. They got bonuses. Like, all these things happened that were a function. Of, so my brother was like, you know, he was like breaking every record at his law firm, right? Like, nobody could work as hard. Nobody could bill as many hours. Like, nobody could, like, crush it like he could. And he was being rewarded for it. Now, he ended up hating it. He left. He's now a public defender. Or uh, he's a prosecutor, rather. So, you know, takes a huge pay cut to go and become a prosecutor because that's what he really wanted to do. But the point is... He could have risen all the way up that chain. And I remember thinking in residency, I'm like, we all get paid the same. We all take the same number of years to get through. It seems crazy to me. Like, there's no other system where this would be the case. Like, I I couldn't think of another system where you just had this complete, total lack of meritocracy. Um, It was really hard to get fired from residency. Like, I saw some real knuckleheads do some real stupid things. I never actually saw anybody get fired, which is not to say you couldn't. I'm sure you could. Um, But... I felt like I was working a lot harder than was necessary because I just wanted to be better. And I thought, God, it's still crazy that this is going to take this many years to get through. So, so the, and I also, there was just a whole bunch of things about the system structurally that I thought were completely broken. And then on the other side, I just felt like healthcare was completely broken as a system, right? So we have this idea. Yeah. You know, I don't remember the exact stats, but you're going to spend like, you know, 50 60 percent of your entire healthcare dollars in like the last year or two of your life i mean something asinine right and uh so at the time my wife said to me you know you are clearly upset about this system uh i i think you have two choices you should either fix the system or leave it but i think that what you're doing now which is staying in the system and not changing it will probably not be sustainable. And so I think the toughest decision I ever made was at that point, because I'm 30, I don't know, probably 32, 33. I've invested 10 years into this, and I'm thinking I want a do-over. I want a complete do-over, which, you know, everybody knows that the sunk cost fallacy is called the sunk cost fallacy for a reason, but it's still a damn compelling reason to keep doing something. So, so that was like, that was a super difficult time. And, you know, in part, you sort of feel like you're letting your mentors down because a lot of people had invested a lot in me, right? Hopkins had taken me, right? You're, I was like one of the six chosen ones. They only take six categoricals a year. So now you're going to leave that program and there were, you know, a couple of attendings I'd become really close to who really believed in me and really said, like, you're going to you're going to do something really special. And then to say, ah, actually, I'm going to leave and I'm not even going to be a doctor anymore. I'm just going to go in. Yeah. So then you roll straight to McKenzie. Well, so I so what I wanted to do is actually go back and get an MBA because uh, I really the other thing I missed a lot in medicine was uh, I missed quantitative stuff like I I missed math like I missed being an engineer and the few times I tried to bring that into medicine I got spanked right so there's you know it's one story I I think I've talked about this maybe on a podcast before I don't 
think so, though. This is actually probably my first or second year. I'm in the ICU taking care of this patient, and this patient's on a very, very toxic drug called gentamicin. This is a drug that has to be dosed very carefully. So if you give too much of it, you can destroy their hearing permanently and destroy their kidneys permanently. If you don't give enough of it, the bacteria that you're trying to kill will kill them. So you're, 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 you have a very narrow range in which to give the dose. So there is no standard dose. It's not like, oh, just take 875 milligrams of this every 12 hours. No. It's take a first guess based on the patient's body weight. So this many milligrams per kilogram, give it to them, and then measure a level. And then once the level comes below a certain point, give it again. And I remember thinking, that doesn't even make sense. Like, surely we know enough about the kinetics of this drug that we could build a mathematical model to predict when to give it. So... I looked up, you know, a couple of papers, a couple of books, one night on call. Sure enough, I find, like, there's a very predictable alpha and beta decay cycle for this drug. So, like, literally in Excel, I build a model that uses a very simple differential equation, and it needs a few inputs, and it will predict the kinetic curve of this. And I'm like, all right, let's try it out. So, take one of my patients, going to be on gentamicin. I do everything the standard way, but I plug my numbers into the model to see would my model have predicted this better and better? And the answer was unquestionably. So now I start to get a little confident in the idea. So like the next night, I'm like, all right, I'm actually going to start dosing the patient based on the model, which never puts the patient in jeopardy because you're always going to check the level before you dose, but you're going to do so at the exact right moment. And so my model predicted like at 4.31 a.m., this patient will nadir, which means that's when you need to dose them. So sure enough, at like four in the morning, I get the I ask the nurse to draw the patient's blood to confirm they're just about to nadir. We're going to redose them, and away we go. So the next morning on rounds, you know, in, in the ICU, you round as a big team. I'm presenting that you know this patient who's one of my patients, and I start explaining that. Okay, so the patient received their dose of gentamicin at 4:30 in the morning, and the attending says, "Well, what do you mean 4:30 in the morning? We never dose gent at 4:30 in the morning. We dose it at 7 a.m. always." And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah," but the patient hit their nadir at 4.30. It's like, I don't care. You know, and so we got into this huge fight and like, you know, I almost got fired. That, that would have got me fired, by the way. <laughs> Finally, someone gets fired. Finally, someone you. gets fired. And so, I mean, that pissed me off beyond words, right? It pissed me off that like, it just struck me as so anti-intellectual. Like maybe my model wasn't perfect. I, I, we never know. But the fact that nobody even cared to say, is there a better way to do this? That drove me batshit crazy. And, and that's just one of many stories like that that happened through residency where I was like, it's almost like we want to live in the 1950s here. And so, so you have that sort of pain of problem solving is not valued. Uh, at least it didn't seem valued to me. It was valued in the lab, but I had decided now I'm not gonna be in the lab. So here I live in this world where problem solving is not valued. And I don't actually, I'm not a quant anymore. Like I don't do math anymore. And I really loved math. Um, so I started so I started tutoring kids in math. I, I, I made like a little bit of free time so I could like tutor high school kids in calculus just to like get my calculus on again, missing it. But it wasn't the same. So, so then I was like, you know, maybe I'll go back and get an MBA. So I looked into that, didn't feel like, I was already drowning in debt at that point in time. You know, you've got med school debt is sort of painful. 
and you know residency you're making i think at the time we're making about thirty four thousand bucks a year so it's you're not even putting a dent in your two hundred thousand dollar debt sort of thing so so then i remember one night i was in i was on call and i was really pissed to be on call this night this and you can relate to this better than i'll ever be able to relate to it because i'm sure this happened to you your whole life but my best friend from high school tells me in february he's getting married that august and i'm the best man he lives in toronto so he's like this is the date of my wedding i forget what it was like august 5th it's a saturday i want you to be the best man i'm completely honored so i tell my program director in february can i not be on call that day <laughs> or the day before i just need to i need to be able to fly out of baltimore on a friday and come back on a sunday and he's like yeah yeah, yeah that's no problem I remind him three times. No problem, no problem, no problem. Sure enough, the call schedule comes out. I'm on call Saturday. I'm on call the day of the guy's wedding. Like, you got to be kidding me. So it's 2 o'clock that morning. I'm down in the ER looking at a, a chest CT scan on a guy who I'm worried has a what's called a dissecting aorta. And um, the radiologist, you know, I, I, I introduce myself, and she's very nice, and she sort of walks me through the CT scan, and, and we just start shooting the breeze a little bit. And she says, oh, yeah, you seem kind of down tonight. What's up? And I was like, ah, I'm just kind of pissed off. I mean, I wish I wasn't here, blah, 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 blah. And, and she's like, yeah, I can I can relate. I used to be in a surgical residency myself. And I was like, oh, really? She goes, yeah, yeah, I did my internship in surgery up at the University of Seattle. And I just hated it so much that I left and actually joined this company called McKinsey. You know, I worked there for two years, but then decided I wanted to come back to medicine. So, I, But I wanted to do it in sort of a kinder, gentler way. So that's why I'm back here doing radiology. And I was like, oh. What's this McKinsey thing? I'd never heard of it. And so she told me all about it. And I was like, huh, that sounds interesting. How do I apply? You know, and that was sort of the beginning of it. So she introduced me to some folks. And, you know, then I had to like study all over again because the way they interview at these consulting firms is very specific. And it's not you, you can be the smartest dude in the world if you show up and you haven't thought through how to solve a case uh, like what are called these case interviews, you're you're going to flail. So you have to actually put in some legwork and and study. So I, you know, got a bunch of books on case interviews, and I'd be sitting in the trauma bay waiting for bodies to come in. I'd be like reading my cases, you know, case interview things before. So that that's that was sort of the the transition. And then you walk, you walk out, you walk away from medicine. You go into so were you doing medicine specific consulting? So at I was McKinsey? recruited to do that because McKinsey. Um, and I, I'm sure this is true of like Bain and BCG, which are kind of the other two really big um, management consulting firms. Um, they recruit about a third of their consultants who out of sort of what we call non-typical or atypical rather um, backgrounds. So people who have PhDs or JDs or MDs, but who didn't go to business school. And then so they send you off to do business school that summer. They do this thing called a mini MBA, which was, I mean, it was like being a kid in a candy store again. Because I got to go spend a whole summer in school again, learning finance, like learning all of these things that, you know, for some people might seem kind of dry. But when you're like just dying to get back into numbers, I was like, oh, my God. Like, you know, I remember the first time we learned what was called the efficient frontier, which is basically this differential equation that describes, you know, an investment philosophy. I was like, like, I can't believe I'm doing this again. I can't believe it. So so then I, we show up for orientation. I'm in San Francisco. At this time, that was the other thing. I wanted to get back to California. So I was like, you know, I, San Francisco, please. So during the first, uh, during, during orientation week, I was approached by one of the staffers there and they said, hey, you know, your background 
looks like you've done a lot of mathematics. I said, yeah. They said, well, you know, we know you're a physician and you're probably here to work on, you know, the, all the medical teams are going to try to grab you to have you work on some biotech thing or whatever. But um, we have this um, banking issue that is, is very important to some of our clients and it requires, you know, an ability to do stochastic calculus. Would, would you be up for doing that? And I was like, of course. And so then, you know, that was basically the beginning and I never really stopped doing that stuff. So, so they, I ended up doing what was called credit risk modeling, which then, which started out around this thing called the Basel II Accord, which was a type of, uh, this was a regulation mm-hmm. that came out in the mid 2000s that required banks to hold a certain, certain amount, amount of, of capital money. against unexpected right. losses. Right. So banks have a long history of knowing how to hold capital for expected losses, but they don't really know what to do for unexpected losses. And in particular, the problem that was damning was something called asset value correlations. So um, if you're a bank, you, you could have 27 lines of business. You do first mortgage, second mortgage, auto, student, credit card, like you name it. And the problem is nobody really understood how those assets correlated. So if your loss rate is X, in this, what's the probability that it impacts the loss right. rate in that? So where that where the rubber meets the road is, if I can't make my house payment, I'm probably not making my car payment either. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what nobody kind of realized. Everything went down. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that turned into, as we were in the midst of that. Because, that- the, because the banks used to leverage themselves so much that they could, they, well, in in when the market crashed, they weren't ready for, they couldn't handle it. You know, it's such an, I mean, it's like literally one of my favorite topics actually, which I'm sure your listeners don't want to get bored to tears on it. But the, first of all, the best movie of all the movies that have like tried to explain what's going on, the big short by far does the best job because it actually explains the, the sequence of events that went, that took this from being just an isolated problem to a systemic problem. Most people miss the subtlety of how this thing ceased to be contained. You know, because technically a housing crisis shouldn't have affected the global economy. So it was these instruments called CDOs that effectively allowed this problem to become enormous. But at the time, the bigger issue was you know, just a great example of hubris that exists everywhere, right? Which is, one, we don't like looking at data that contradict our point of view. And we're all guilty of this. I'm guilty of this. I find myself doing it. And I actually am now quite amused. I'm so attuned to it now that I'm quite amused. Like if I'm flipping through Twitter, I'll see a story that is completely against how I feel. And I don't want to read it. And then like the next one will be like exactly how I feel. I want to read it. And I'm like, dude, look what you just did, man. You gotta stop. Pull back. Go. Assume you are wrong and keep going and try to figure out if you're. But so, so at the at the banking level, I mean, and we, you know, the the canary in the coal mine here. Well, there were many, but in two thousand early two thousand six, two thousand yeah, mid two thousand six, we had when we were trying to do these asset value correlations. One of the biggest problems we had is we couldn't. We only had ten years of data the banks only had this data Mm -hmm. recorded for 10 years we didn't have losses to model and i remember saying to like you know the controller at this bank i'm like hey man like it's going to be really hard to build you a model of losses when you don't have any historical losses 
And he goes, well, and that's mortgages. Mortgages can't lose money. <laughs> right? So that was, and we can laugh at that now, but at the time, that was like not an unreasonable point of view. Yeah. Right? Like you can't lose money on a first mortgage. Think about it. You got to put 20% down. You want to buy a home for hundred grand? You better show up with twenty. You better be able to document you have a job. You better do this. You better do that. You better do that. So you now the bank's only on the hook for eighty on a home that's been legitimately appraised for a hundred, and you've shown documentation. So you're at least going to pay that thing down to seventy, such that worst case scenario, market falls by ten percent. House is worth ninety. You lose your job. Guess who still gets paid? The bank. The bank. They yeah. still get their 70. Sure, if you're in the business of creating a second mortgage, you take a little bit more risk. But there's no reason you should have been losing money on first mortgages. And so <coughs> you fast forward a year. Well, especially because don't worry about the value of the house because that's going to go always up. Always going to go up. <laughs> that's right. So we're good to go. Oh, well, that's where. And I remember even when I was in Baltimore, one of my buddies, because, you know, the residents were always looking for a way to make a buck on the side, right? When you're making 34k a year, you gotta you gotta come up with. And the only saving grace is you can't spend money. Mm-hmm. Like you, your clothes is free, you're in scrubs all the time, you're kind of eating for free all the time because you I eat off the patients' trays, whatever they didn't finish. I <laughs> like go to the nurses' station and eat all this crap. So I didn't I didn't actually spend much money. Um, pens was like the only thing I wasted money on. Like I collect Mont Blancs. And so even through residency, I would still buy these beautiful pens. So, um, so yeah, I remember one of my buddies being like, dude, we got to start buying houses in Baltimore because like they're so cheap and you can get them with no money down. So you could buy a house for 200,000 bucks, put like $5,000 down. If that house goes up to 220, you just made 25K. You made 20K on your five. We're going all the way. (laughs) (laughs) And no one does the math of, what if it goes down to 190? You just lost everything, right? (laughs) So luckily, um, I didn't get in on any of those sweetheart deals. Although, you know, if you time them right, there a lot of people did make a lot of money on those deals before the shoe fell. So when, when 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 things started to become clear, so in early... In early 07, it became clear subprime mortgages were going to be a problem. By August of 07, a a very famous, then famous analyst, uh, what's her name? Meredith Whitney, I believe is her name. I think she was at Oppenheimer, called something that at the time seemed crazy. She said Citigroup is going to cut its dividend next month. So for Citigroup, you know, huge one of the largest banks in the country, to not pay a dividend for Q3 seemed impossible. But she'd done the math. She's like, yeah, there's no way they're get, they're getting crushed on these mortgage-backed securities, and everyone was like, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Sure enough, Q3 comes along, Citi cuts its dividend. Chuck Prince, the CEO of Citi, gets fired, and at that point, it's like, god damn. <laughs> but button. again, everybody was still thinking this is just a subprime problem. It's an inch wide, and yeah, it's a mile deep, but it's an inch wide. Well, in the background, we're working on another problem, which is prime mortgages, that which everybody thinks is totally fine, that which has a historical default ratio of less than half a percent. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing in the data, the data that was right in front of this bank the whole time, oh, there's a a tsunami coming. Your default rate's going to hit four or five percent, which... Again, that might not sound like a lot. That's 10 times your default rate. It's going to be actually higher than that, as we learned. 
and your loss given a default is going up much higher. So loss is actually the dot product of probability of default and loss given default. Okay, you guys are my only two customers. Probability you default is 50%, the probability you default is 10%. If you default, you will lose 100,000. So it's 10% times 100,000, I expect to lose 10,000 on you. If you default, it's 2,000, so 50% times 2,000, 1,000. So my total expected loss is 11,000. So this is, you know, you do this 88 million times for every account you have. And the model to predict probability default and loss given default are enormous models that each have 50 variables in them. Actually, the PD does, the LGD doesn't. But what people didn't realize is the loss given defaults were skyrocketing. It was like, in fact, again, at the level of just being kind of a math idiot, like that to me was so <laughs> amazing to watch, right? It was like, holy shit, watch these LGDs go. They're just like blowing up. like, And then you knew once the PD triggered, meaning once the probability of default went, oh, it was, it was, it was going to become a nonlinear catastrophe. Mm-hmm. And it turned out, so November 15th, Thursday, November 15th, 2007, was kind of the day, like that was the matrix moment. So I had a team, great example. I was able to be a leader for once because I had an amazing team. I had a team in San Francisco of four people. I had a team in India of four guys. We worked round the clock, 16 hours a day, every day, uh, except Sundays we took off. And we would pass the model back and forth to each other. Amazing. Like it was like, it was, it was pure bliss to be working that hard on this problem. And on that day, we basically came up with four independent models that all predicted how bad this thing was going to be. And we presented it to the leadership of this bank. And it's really funny. I was a manager. So so at McKinsey, you have these levels like analyst, associate, manager, junior partner, partner, director. For a meeting of that stature, meaning you're talking to the entire leadership of the bank, the, the senior partner would only be the one to predict. I'd be in the corner working the PowerPoint, mm-hmm. answering a question if piped up, because there's going to be a technical question. But the senior partner would do all the talking. But on that day, we go into the meeting and the senior partner says, Peter, you should present this. <laughs> and I said, are you sure? Because I'm like the third most junior guy in the room here. And he said, yeah, two reasons. One, you're the only one who actually understands how all of these models work. And, two, and this is the funniest thing he said. He goes, two, because of all of your experience with cancer patients, you're going to be very oh good God. at answering hard questions Why? about bad things happening. Wow. And I was like, okay. So I stepped in and I did my best to be empathetic and non-judgmental and like just as evidence fact-based as I could. And this is what this says. And this is what this, when you look at the run rate model and the PGD says this and the LGD says this and the vintage model says this and, you know, here. And so finally, like the president of the bank says, how much money are we going to lose? Like she was kind of like, you know, like all good leaders. She's just like, just get, tell me the goddamn answer first. Mm-hmm. So I said, I had to think on my feet like pretty quickly about a way to put it in terms. So I said, you're going to lose more money in the next 18 months than you've made in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And see the Jocko answer to that question, how much money are we going to lose? Would have been all of it. That's the difference between you and me on Twitter, right? Like, you always have the best answer. Like, always. Because that, that would be, like, 
Hey, Jocko, like he just pictured it on Twitter. Hey, like, you know, the CEO of like the bank. Hey, hey Jocko, how much money are we going to lose? All of it. <laughs> Peter, one of three. Well, start with your EBITDA last year. Multiply that by two of three. <laughs> three of three. <laughs> uh, yeah. Did they, did they listen to you at all? No. <clears throat> Didn't want to believe that data, huh? They, that was impossible. That was impossible to fathom. Uh, years later, because I had by this point left McKinsey, but I stayed in close touch with that team, and I reached back out to uh, that senior partner who, um, actually, I'm still very close with. Yeah, I just got a mail from him two days ago. Um, I said, hey, man, remember all those models? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did, did we, were we roughly close? And he goes, oh, uh, no, the model's underestimated by a third. <sighs> I mean, I was like, it seemed like we kept trying to tone the models down because they kept giving us these answers and we were like, damn, like there's no way it yeah. can be this bad. Yeah. And we were like, oh, let's make this assumption more conservative and let's do this and let's, you know, and in the end it was like, nope, it was actually that bad. Brutal. So then, now I remember, I saw you tell a story one time, it's on, it's on YouTube somewhere, but you're talking about a patient you were working on, you kind of alluded to this earlier, you know, either pre-diabetic or diabetic, and you're sitting there going, you got to be kidding me, because the day before you tried to save someone's life that was, you know, a young kid. And that was sort of the, was that the first time that you started thinking about nutrition as a, you know, and, and earlier you talked about, hey, we do all this stuff at the end of life. It's all this prevention to prevent someone from actually dying. But if we would have invested some of that money up front, taught these people how to eat, we would have been better off. Is that sort of where it came from or? Not at all. I mean, I never made that connection at that time, oh, right? So at that time, it was just what you describe. It was just the visceral reaction of, I'm so angry at you. How can you not take care of yourself? How can you be sitting here so fat, so diabetic? You know, over and over again, you come in here to, to have these ulcers debrided and to have these things amputated. And you know how the story is going to go. Like, just get it together. So, so this was, I mean, I didn't say those words, but right. that's how I'm feeling. Right? right. And so that's, that's just part of like the, the, the callousness that developed towards that subset of patient. It wasn't until probably 2009. Um, so I'm, you know, out of medicine now, but I was becoming overweight and I was pre-diabetic. I wasn't diabetic, but I was pre-diabetic. And I was, you know, that I was sort of come full circle, right? That I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I do everything right. I mean, I'm swimming four hours a day. I'm following that goddamn food pyramid to the core. I mean, I don't eat saturated fat. I'm like, you know, I, I carb load like a banshee. Like, why am I, why is all this stuff happening to me? And so, so then when I, you know, went through my whole discovery process of figuring that out, it was only then that I really thought back and reflected upon, you know, the horrible way I had treated not just that patient in particular, but, but obviously many other patients like her. Uh, I remember her case specifically because it was probably like the absolute uh, low point of my existence. Um, so it, it, unfortunately, it took me sort of failing on my own because at least then I could say this isn't a willpower problem. It's not like you don't care. It's not like you're not trying. You're doing what you're told to do and you're failing miserably. So either you're an outlier or maybe the advice is incorrect. So you're eating what you're being told to eat. You're carb loading and you're still getting fat. Yep. Even though in, at this time you're swimming 
we were just talking about it before the podcast, you're doing ultra long swims, dozens of miles worth of swimming. Which, by the way, in SEAL training, in basic SEAL training, the longest you swim is five and a half nautical miles, which is 6.2 statute miles, which, and and that's with swim fins on. So you're out there in the, and you're out there in the open ocean swimming 12, 15, 18 miles at a time. And you're training for that, working hard, and you're quote unquote eating right because you're not eating saturated fat. And yet you're getting fat, you go into the doctor, you get a blood test and they say, oh yeah, by the way, you're pre-diabetic. And you just say to yourself, what is going on? Yeah, and, and truth be told, I was actually more pissed just from the vanity standpoint at being fat. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I wish I could sit Echo here is and, nodding. For those of you on the podcast, Echo is nodding his head <laughs> enthusiastically to that I mean, I, I mean, I wish I could say like, oh, it didn't bother me to be fat. It did bother me to be fat. It really bothered me to be fat, right? It bothered me... <laughs> It bothered me a lot, actually. And so much so that I actually wanted to get a gastric bypass. And so I, <laughs> I went. How big were you? Uh, I was like, so right now I'm about 175. Mm-hmm. I was like probably 205 to 210. Oh, dang. Um, okay, so once again, after this podcast, you and I, we're going into counseling session. I know, you bro, need that's help. That <laughs> <laughs> um, so I went to, I finally got my doctor to get me a referral to this guy named Ken Fujioka, who's like a very prominent bariatric physician here in San Diego. So I finally go to see Fujioka. So I, I'm sitting in the waiting room and uh, actually I think I told this story on Tim's podcast. I don't remember telling you, it. You did tell it. But it is it. in it's in the book. It's in the his oh, book. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah, yeah. I think it's, this it's story in Tools is in the Titans. Yeah, yeah. So I, I uh, but in the spirit of assuming nobody listens to or reads multiple other things. So I'm in the waiting room. I'm finally waiting to see and the nurse comes out and before you go back to the to the clinic room, like you have to get weighed. That's just part of the protocol, right? So like they call my name. So I walk up and I get on the scale and the nurse comes out and weighs me and it's like, you know, whatever, 210. And she's like, congratulations. <laughs> and I'm like, what? She goes, you're post-surgery, right? And I'm like, no, I'm here to be evaluated for surgery. Yeah, yeah. She like looks at me, looks out at the waiting room where everybody's 400 pounds yeah. and like doesn't say a word, but the look in her eyes is basically like, what the hell is yeah. wrong with you, kid? Yeah, yeah, you got yeah. serious issues, son. <laughs> um, but <laughs> it seemed like a reasonable idea. Well, yeah, very reasonable, very reasonable. You might want to check your reasonable ideas with me <laughs> in the future <laughs> because that is not a reasonable idea. So you get done. You don't do that surgery, obviously. But what yeah, he, cli- he, that guy had no patience for me. What by the clicked way. in your brain? Did you just all of a sudden say to yourself, "Okay, how is this happening?" And then you remembered your A and P class no, and said, "This no. is the this so is I what's just, happening." I, I, so I remember clear as day. So uh, September seventh, two thousand nine, I did. A, you, I sort of did like one of these long swims a year. You know, you do a bunch of short ones, a bunch of training. But you always I had one main event. So my main event this year was uh, I went back to Catalina Island, and I wanted to swim from now L.A. out to Catalina. I had previously gone from Catalina to L.A. And um, it was a tough swim. I had a torn labrum. So about six hours in, you know, it just became unbearable pain. Um, and you don't usually have a head current 
in the Catalina Channel. So the San Pedro Channel, you know this, you're mm-hmm. probably trained out there. The current's usually running from Point Conception yep. down or up. Yep. So you usually have a little bit of a cross current, mm-hmm. rare, very rare to get anything back or forth. And if anything, it's generally a little bit towards the island. And when I had swum four years earlier from Catalina to LA, it took 10 and a half hours, but that was only 18 months after I learned how to swim. Mm-hmm. I was a much better swimmer in 2009. And I was going in the theoretically faster direction. So a great example is expectations can kill you. So mm-hmm. I'm expecting this to be like a nine-hour swim back. And, and really, the only thing I'm thinking about, which is the worst thing you think about in marathon swimming, you should never, ever, ever think about how long this is going to take because you just, you're just setting yourself up for misery. The only real question I had is could I break nine hours? You know, I should be able to break nine hours, right? So to make a long story short, I don't even come close. This is a total disaster scenario the other thing you you'll appreciate this just because you'll appreciate the stupidity um you never want to look anywhere when you're swimming except down um it's very demoralizing when you're in the middle like if you're in the middle of the channel you don't see land from the water level you just you just don't so that's so before you get in the water you tell the crew and every i've crew chiefed for a lot of great swimmers i mean it's the the, the, the crew asks the swimmer, what do you want? What information do you want? So we're starting the swim at midnight at Point Vicente. I said, okay, I want to know when there are exactly 10 miles to go and exactly four miles to go. What's, that, the, what's the total distance of the swim? Well, as a crow flies, it's 21. Um, God. And if, so if you don't have a current, you're doing a 21-mile swim. Yeah. If you do have a current, you're going to swim more than that. So... So that's what I said. I said, guys, I want to know when there's 10 to go and 4 to go. Why? 10 to go, you're just a little over halfway. I'd like to just know that. At 4 to go, it's put your head down and swim for two hours. Don't do anything. You're there. So we start the swim at midnight. This is in September. So I forget what time the sun was rising back then. But I knew that I would have 10 to go before the sun came up. So in other words, I knew that once the light was up, Mm -hmm. I was going to be inside the 10 stretch. And Uh-oh. one of the most amazing things about swimming in the middle of the ocean, I don't know if you got to experience this during training, is in the Pacific, the bioluminescence yeah, is awesome. so strong. Totally, yeah. And so on a clear night, which I was always lucky to have, every time I swam out, I've done a lot of the channel swims. Every time I've been out there, I've always been blessed with these clear nights. It's so dark because once you get out of L.A.'s light, under the water, so your hand is coming down, you are seeing the bioluminescence flare yeah. off your hands. When you breathe, you are seeing the stars. You can't tell the difference. It yeah, is it's, so it's dark. Awesome. You cannot see the difference between stars and bioluminescence. It's like being in this amazing chamber. And so that's the that's the reward you get for swimming at night, which is otherwise incredibly lonely. And then the first thing you notice is the bioluminescence gets harder and harder to see, which means, oh, the sun's going to be up in an hour. And the sun comes up. Now the sun's like up there. I haven't heard anything. And I'm like, those guys, they forgot to tell me I've got 10 to go. That's okay. Probably down to six to go now. And I'm swimming, I'm swimming, I'm swimming. It must be like 10 o'clock in the... I mean, I'm being facetious. It's probably like 8.30 in the morning. And they're like, 10 to go. And I was like, Jesus, what? And Because at that point, I had no clue what the current was like. Because a swimmer can't feel current, right? Swimmers can only feel relative velocity, not absolute velocity. So, you know, that coupled with the torn labrum, 
coupled with like it ended up being over 14 hours of swimming and this is a very long story because your question was so simple but i remember getting on the boat i don't even remember what my question your question was, was about point. nutrition <laughs> about, about about like when i finally decided i was, this was, here, the day. I was over here in bioluminescence <laughs> mill I mean, okay so this is the day you, so so finish the swim hours. get back to the boat and they've got like two burgers and two cokes waiting for me and I mean, like, I couldn't have eaten those things quicker. Like, the biggest, juiciest burgers you've ever seen. Like, the Cokes. Like, they tasted so good, right? Because, you know, your mouth is so salty. Like, you actually really want something sweet. And my wife, this, you know, my wife hates when I tell this story because she denies that she said it. But she completely said it. Um, <laughs> she, I'm just sitting there, like, I remember this. I have a picture Enjoy of Enjoy the burger, fatty. <laughs> <laughs> I've got, like, a USA towel wrapped around my waist, inhaling, like, I'm two-fisting burgers, drinking my Cokes. And she just looks at me and she goes, and again, just in the sweetest way possible, she said, you you should probably work on being a little less not thin. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, is that like wow. the kindest way to just tell somebody you're kind of getting a little fat? Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Post 14 hour swim, uh, open yeah. ocean, get some. <laughs> so that was the last time I had a Coke. Yeah. I've never had a Coke since. Dang. Um, and, and all I did, frankly, at the time was just say, like, I'm just going to try an experiment. Because I was like, look, at that time, I still thought it was just calories in, calories out. I thought it was really just simple arithmetic. And my view was, all right, I can't do anything more on the calories outside. There's only 168 hours in a week. I'm not willing to exercise more than 28 of them. So calories out, I don't get to change that anymore. And frankly, I didn't really want to change the calories inside because I hated being hungry. Every time I tried to eat less, I would just be so hungry, I didn't know what to do with myself. So I was like, I'm going to try a new experiment. What if it's the type of calorie that might matter? Sugar strikes me as not great for you, even though I can't tell you why. I'm going to stop having sugar. So that was my first experiment in September of 09. And that led to everything that's come since that time, which obviously ultimately led to me coming back to medicine as well. Yeah. And that's where you're at now. And and, and by the way, um, listen to Tim Tim's podcast. What else should people listen to to get all that nutritional information this, the rest of the story, I think it's Tim's. Yeah, I mean, a couple things with Tim. Um, I did a podcast with Chris Kresser um, earlier this year. Talked about longevity a little bit. I did one. I did. I probably have a maybe. Oh, you know what? Probably get more into nutrition on that. There's an IHMC video I did probably like three or four years ago. That one's like an hour long, yeah. and you go pretty detailed in it. Yep. Okay. That's yeah, probably. I've watched that one. Yeah. yeah, those are good. Those are good. And again, if you had to kind of tell people that aren't going to go listen to those podcasts, aren't going to watch that that video, what would you tell them? You know, what would you tell them to eat overall? You know, I, I generally don't like talking about nutrition because, uh, and don't worry, I will answer this question, but I want to at least preface it why I don't like it. I don't like talking about this stuff. Um Nutrition is kind of a pseudoscience that masquerades as a religion for many people. And so I find it difficult to have a discussion about biochemistry when it's so cloaked in emotion, religion, and dogma. 
Now, that's not to say I don't have a strong point of view. I certainly do. It's also an evolving point of view. I feel different today than I felt four or five years ago. Uh, I feel different today than I felt two years ago. And also, my life is one big experiment, right? So, you know, like we were joking before I came in here, I mean, I've got a glucose meter buried within me at the moment. I've got like all these heart rate variability things. Like everything I'm doing, actually, let me just check. I actually did an experiment before I came here today. I ate something, and I want to see how much it raised my blood sugar. <laughs> That's not bad. What did you eat? So I ate this product that I've been doing some research on. It's called No, K-N-O-W, like No Foods. And I was introduced to this product by one of my patients who said, hey, Peter, I want you to kick the tires on this a little bit. It's... Um, it's, it uses a sugar substitute called allulose, and it tastes amazing, and apparently, like, it doesn't raise your blood sugar at all. And I was like, yeah, I'm familiar with allulose. Uh, for, for those who might not know, allulose is a sugar that occurs in nature in very small quantities that looks exactly like this sugar called fructose, which is fruit sugar, the sweet component of sugar, with one small exception. But that one small exception carries with it some very important things. One, it's not quite as sweet as fructose. It's about 70% as sweet. But by giving up that little bit of that sweetness, you get a whole bunch of stuff in return. First of all, it's not metabolized by the liver, hmm. which is the real problem with fructose. Two, you barely absorb it. So 99% of it or more or less is excreted by the kidneys. And three, it actually seems to lower blood glucose. So this company, No Foods, is putting this like making stuff out of this, but stuff that is like carby, like bread and waffles and muffins and stuff. So mm. anyway, to make a long story short, I'm at this patient's house and he's force feeding me these things, which is really a, my way of saying he's left the bag open and I'm inhaling them. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, 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 you gotta, you gotta like, tell me if this stuff's legit. So to make a long story short, he plugs me into the guy who founded the company and he has sent me a bunch of this stuff to just play with because he knows what I do, and so that's what I've been doing. So today, I normally don't eat breakfast, so I worked out this morning, and then before I came here, I had a big piece of their toast covered in almond butter, and then two of their huge waffles covered with almond butter and bananas. Like, I made a big sandwich out of that. So the almond butter, not going to have a huge glycemic response because mm -hmm. it's got so much fat and protein in it, but the bananas should skyrocket my blood sugar, sure. not to mention the two freaking waffles the size of my head mm -hmm. and the piece of toast. So interestingly, so that was at 9 o'clock that I ate those. Now, I've been up since 3.30, but I didn't eat anything. I worked out from 7 to 8. So admittedly, there's a bit of a glycogen debt. So at 9 o'clock when I ingested, my blood glucose was 65. And at its peak, which was 11.18 a.m., it was up to 90, and it's now down to 83. What would real waffles have done to you? I think they would have sent me to like 140. Three huge pieces of bread slash waffle with the full banana. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I've been doing these experiments all week, which is just a great excuse to eat this stuff. And I'm, I'm actually surprised. I'm kind of blown away. So, okay, with all that said, what's my advice for what people should eat? In an ideal world, everybody would have this thing embedded in them like I do. This thing is called a Dexcom G5. It's a continuous glucose monitor. Um, <laughs> typically only used by people with type 1 diabetes. Mm -hmm. um, we're now starting to see people with type 2 diabetes wear them. But 
um, I was really completely lucky one day sitting on an airplane next to a dude who happened to be into watches. I'm into watches. We got talking about watches. I find out he's the CEO of the company that makes this thing. The rest is history, right? I'm like obsessed with this stuff. And so because the answer is this, right? If you were a computer program, I would say, Jocko, eat whatever you want to eat such that your average blood glucose remains below 85 milligrams per deciliter and your standard deviation below 10 milligrams per deciliter. So translate that into English. Okay. So eat in whatever way your genetics and epigenetics permit you to such that your glucose levels stay low and the variability stays low. And those two things will ensure that your insulin levels stay low. So what I'm trying to do is optimize for something called the insulin AUC or area under the curve. Now we can't measure that test clinically. The only way I could measure that is put you in a hospital, put a central line in your neck and excuse me, sample your blood every 30 minutes over the course of a day where you somehow act normally. And every day, so then I'd have a time axis, Y axis, the, sorry, the X axis would be time, the Y axis would be insulin level, and we'd generate a curve and we'd calculate the area under that curve. And we want that number to be as low as possible. So we can't do that outside of the research setting. So then the next best thing is keep your average glucose as low as possible and the variability. So you could have an average glucose of 100 with low variability, and that actually wouldn't produce that much insulin. Or you could have a glucose of 100 with high variability. Same average glucose, higher variability is going to have higher insulin, all things equal. So just through empirical testing in myself over the past year and a half, I've realized that an average blood glucose, and this thing tells me every time I hit click, like it gives me my last 14 days. I just realized like for my average to be below 85 and my standard deviation to be below 10 is like super dialed in. So what you can eat to achieve that varies tremendously by individual. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there are some people who just dispose of glucose remarkably. So that blood test we're going to do in you next week Mm -hmm. is going to be our best test at measuring that. Um, and so, so glucose disposal is, is mostly a function of the insulin sensitivity of the muscle because the muscle is where we dispose of the majority of glucose. Um, but it's more, a little more complicated than that, right? Sleep impacts that, right? So sleep deprivation makes us more insulin resistant. So this has been experimentally demonstrated, even with two weeks of sleep deprivation. So there's a, it's a small but very well-controlled experiment that was done at the University of Chicago price six years ago. They took uh, a very small number of subjects, like I said, about eight subjects, and for two weeks, let them only sleep four hours a night. And they did um, a very invasive test called a euglycemic insulin clamp at the beginning and at the end of the experiment. And their insulin... Uh, sensitivity, their glucose disposal deteriorated by 50% and with no change in what they were eating. So, um, so it's highly variable, right? So that's theoretically the answer on a practical level. I would say the answer is this, right? If it comes in a package, you're probably better off not eating it, right? Um, if your ancestors couldn't have eaten this even 200 years ago, it's probably not worth eating. So if you just followed that advice, think about how many things you'd eliminate from your diet, right? 
If you just took packaged foods away right. from your diet, and again, notice I'm agnostic. You want to be a vegan? Knock yourself out. You want to be the paleo man of the century? Go for it. I don't give a shit. Okay? Like, I couldn't care less, right? But if you can largely adhere to those principles, you're kind of going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Do you want, you know, you're going to get 70% of the way there. You want to get 80, 90, 100% of the way there? Yeah, well, then there's no simple answer. Now, at that point, you got to dial in and you got to go full immersion into how do you tweak to your biochemistry? How much protein? What's the timing of the meals? When do we fast? I mean, all of the stuff that uh, is, is my world and maybe soon to be your world, uh, that, that's... Um, that's the that's the stuff for which you cannot provide you know systemic advice, but at the at the societal level or at the just the most basic level, yeah, I mean think about that advice. Like you don't you don't eat sugar anymore. You won't eat refined carbohydrates anymore. You're not going to eat you know processed crappy foods anymore. What are you going to eat? You're going to eat fruits. You're going to eat vegetables. You're going to eat meat. You're going to eat grain. You know what kind of grains are you going to eat? Well, you know you're you're you know you're not going to really eat these sort of refined crappy grains that people eat. You're going to you know your your starches. I'm sorry, not grains. Your starches are probably going to be in the form of potatoes and rice. Mm -hmm. So, again, a lot of people. You know, again, I just I sort of I think the reason I don't like talking about nutrition anymore is I don't find it to be an intellectually honest discussion anymore. I find it to be just a discussion of dogma, right? So if you're a low carb camp, you're a low carb camp. If you're in the you know, whatever the vegan camp, you're in the vegan camp. Like there's the, you can't even have a discussion about this stuff and at least not with most people. Yeah. So I just, you know, you ever read the book called diet cults? I know. Bro, so Does it get into what this nonsense? you just said right yeah. there, that's the whole book really so interesting, fun to read too. <laughs> so good. All right. We'll have to check that out. Diet cults. Now get I kind of open with this and since we're, since we're a little over two hours right now. Come on. Uh, I said that you're probably the most responsible individual for this podcast. And because you originally, through Kirk, uh, set me up to do a podcast with Tim Ferriss, which sent me up to do a podcast with Joe Rogan, which was just all awesome. And both those guys told me I should do my own podcast. So anyone that's listening to this podcast, Say thanks to Peter for that. <laughs> Actually, they should thank Kirk, right? Because yeah, Kirk, and Kirk was the man. Yep. You know, I mean, Kirk is, I don't need to tell you, but Kirk's one of those guys where, like, he doesn't have to justify and ask, right? So when he introduced me to you, he didn't have to explain. He was just like, I want you to meet Jocko. Jocko's my friend. I was like, that's good enough. And so, you know, to me, like, that's the measure of when life is good and because I feel that way with all of my friends like if Tim introduces me to somebody like Tim's introduced me to like a dozen people a dozen amazing relationships have come out of that right and so you know you know really it was just very easy for me to sort of take Kirk on his word that like if you know if Jocko's a great guy then that's that's all I need to know I knew you're gonna be a great guy and then similarly like I could tell Tim like hey you got to meet Jocko and and you know Tim gets quote-unquote pitched all day long yeah he does but you know, he knows that I'm I'm not going to send him somebody that's not, you know, going to be really interesting and going to benefit his listeners, not just, you know, whatever agenda that person might have. Yeah, yeah. No, it was awesome. And that, that really did. I mean, the way Tim, the way Tim advised the way he was going to release the podcast in order to support the book. I mean, he just nailed it. It was kind of ridiculous the way he understands that stuff and how, how helpful it was to you know getting our book out there and getting it sold and and all that and getting all these people on board and then 
you know that turned into this podcast which you know he he definitely has promoted the podcast in a fantastic way along with Joe so that's both been awesome but again started with Kirk connecting me with you and then you connecting me with Tim so uh, appreciate that and um, speaking of this podcast my almost silent partner mm-hmm. over here Echo Charles if somebody wants to support the podcast <laughs> How would you recommend they go ahead and do that? You always wait. I have a question. Oh, oh. How'd you hurt your back originally? You know, I don't think we ever really have a diagnosis. Uh, there was certainly nothing on that day that I did. That day I'm riding my bike to the to the gym. I, I you know, I think about the sins of my youth. Um, you know, I was really into martial arts in addition to boxing, and I used to spend a ton of time. Um, I was really obsessed with spinning back kicks. Mm. Now, I don't know if that could have done it or not, I, but I used to practice 75 spinning back kicks with each leg every single day for probably about six years, seven years. Um, it's possible, even though in theory, a spinning back kick, if done correctly, should really not put any torque on the lower back. It's much more in your hips and technically the flexibilities in the thoracic spine, not the lumbar spine. But, you know, God knows, maybe I just wasn't doing those things correctly. Mm. Um I did squat and deadlift really heavy growing up. I did powerlifting as sort of a side sport. But, you know, certainly never hurt myself doing that. Mm. Um, I rode crew for a year. And so I always, I've always wondered if that was the most destructive thing I did because um, in an eight-man boat, it's eight, you're asymmetric, right? Yeah. So when you skull, you're symmetric. When you sweep, you're not. And mm. so I was like, I was a sweeper. And so I almost wonder if, like, that's the most destructive thing I ever did. Yeah, and then you'd figure if you're asymmetric like that, your everyday life is asymmetric, really, because you have a little bit of overdevelopment on one side. Dang, that might have been it. So I I guess I've never really known, but I take it really seriously today. In fact, you know, Jocko, you'll dig this. Um, Two weeks ago, I I did a video in New York with a friend of mine named Jesse Schwartzman. And uh, he's like, I call him the savant of movement. This guy's like, just like the kinesthetic man. And um, I wanted to put a video together of how do you train to train? How do you prepare your body to train? So it's basically three sections. It's um, what, uh, what, what's the sort of dynamic, well, the, the sort of tissue preparation, the static prep and the dynamic prep. It took us eight, maybe, maybe six hours to shoot this video. It'll be edited down into probably three 10-minute videos. Mm-hmm. And as soon as they're done editing, I'm just going to throw them up on YouTube and my blog. So I'll make sure you've got a copy. Awesome. It's, 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 I mean, Jesse's just, uh, you know, he walks me through all the exercises. Mm-hmm. But I get the sense, like, if I had done that stuff all the way in my life, I probably never would have been hurt. And luckily, knock on wood to this day, I mean, I never thought I'd be able to squat and deadlift again after mm-hmm. going through that year of my life. But amazingly, I've, I'm totally fine. And it was a herniated disc that popped off. Popped yeah, so off it was eventually. an L5-S1 really big herniation, yeah. but then a four or five centimeter fragment broke off yeah. and then floats down the canal, and that was sitting on the nerve root. And then I developed a few other problems after. So I developed this thing called a facet arthropathy, which resulted in the feeling of having my testicles torn out from the inside. <laughs> I'm not even joking. That's just so Dang. It's just unbearable. So, yeah, I would imagine that's unbearable. I don't recommend that. No. All right. Um, well, that being said, I guess we can talk about. Um, <laughs> so we can talk about on it. I was talking with Greg mm-hmm. and Terry, mm-hmm. 
and I was showing him about uh, I was showing him the warrior bars, right? right? Like these are these are dope. And then then he was like, oh yeah, like what else is there? There's some good stuff on it. Has good stuff. So I brought out the, the that new pre workout one, which is good by the way. I have a report on that. So that one comes out, and then uh, the krill oil comes out. Oh yeah, this is good for this. So we're talking about this this big table of like all the stuff. It's not a lot. It's like four things: the worry bar, the krill oil, and the pre workout, and uh, three things. And we're like, yeah, this does this, and this does this. And then uh, I kind of step back, and I'm like, yeah, we're those guys with all our supplements, talking about supplements, talking about supplements, right? Which I've never done. And Greg goes, yeah, if we weren't such nice guys, this would be a real douchey conversation. So the kind of the irony there is him saying that he's the one having the douchey conversation but he is the nice guy you get it i I guess so anyway (laughs) point there or actually the second point there is on it is good supplement so if you do talk about them while you're taking them you're not having a douchey conversation and this is why I heard Joe Rogan talking the other day about like how hard it is when you're a stand-up comedian and you tell a joke and it's just flat. Yeah, I think we just got a little. Yeah, but that wasn't. <laughs> here's the thing. That's, here's the thing. That there hurt were, me. Over there were. There were. I was giving you a mercy laugh, <laughs> no, but I didn't no, do no, it because no. I'm not a merciful person. That, that was that had joking elements, but this is true, and this is part of a bigger point that I'm making. I hope so. Let's I do don't expect you to laugh here. at everything I say, even though you pretty much do. <laughs> anyway. The reason that it's not a douchey conversation, here's the point, is because on its supplements, the krill oil, all that stuff, is actually good quality. It's not like, hey, I'm a meathead, I'm going to get buff and all this stuff. It actually helps your performance. Anyway, so in the event of you wanting on it stuff and supporting this podcast, while at the same time supporting yourself, go to onit.com slash jocko, 10% off. Boom. Second way to support, Amazon click through. Christmas is over, but we still need stuff. Duct tape, whatever. Knives, etc. Um, if you want to support this podcast, just go to the website, chocopodcast.com. Click through the, uh, the uh, Amazon banner link before you do your shopping. You can support that way. It's a good way to support. Oh, wait. Yeah, you're into chemistry, right? Sodium, when you put a little piece of sodium in the water... Right, it makes this big commotion. So that's what kind of what the Amazon click through does. It seems like this small little thing, but applied properly, it makes a big impact in the podcast, support wise. Anyway, thought you'd get that. Can we verify that, Doctor? I will have to go and look at the Amazon <laughs> click through to confirm that. <laughs> I, I tell Jocko he typically doesn't really understand because he doesn't know what sodium does. No. Might have been potassium or both, actually. Not so now lie. this whole thing's been a lie, or no, it's no, at least no, no. unsure. No, 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 I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually fairly pretty, certain. Pretty sure goes a long way with that go, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, which seems obvious, because typically the, the podcast you listen to, you subscribe to, but sometimes you don't. So subscribe if you have not already, and you want to support this podcast. Google Play, Stitcher, also in the game. Yeah. And iTunes, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of unfair that I don't think about that as much. You know, when you have an iPhone, no, like you kind of forget all this other I'm stuff. I'm over here to help out. Yeah, man. Good thing you're you're here, yeah, <laughs> on this podcast. Um, YouTube, of course. We're working on putting more videos on there, aside from the whole podcast. So, 
some of those videos and i have gotten like messages saying like those shorter clips right. are helpful they are helpful you know rather than listening to the whole podcast and there's right been people before, that you know. there's been people that have been submitting to you on twitter yeah which excerpts yeah are in high demand out there in the world yeah yeah i've been following now and in fact i have them all like it's a it's a process but yeah we're working on that so subscribe to youtube we are working on that we I are like it. i like yeah. it <laughs> collectively just so you guys know i'm not working on any of that but echo apparently is which is cool well technically you saying hey echo put this one up oh, okay boom My you did your part yeah, yeah man yeah. exactly um and then in the event of you wearing like what like a t-shirt or something or a hoodie jocko has a store it's called jocko store <laughs> The URL is JockoStore. Is, is that a calculator watch you have? I, I was going to get to that. So you mentioned, see, now we've got to change the subject real quick, which I like, by the way. Remember you were talking about you're into watches. Yeah. Right? I was going to show. I didn't want to interrupt your, what you're saying, but. That is You appreciate sick. that one, right? <laughs> that is ridiculous. <laughs> I just reincorporated uh, this one back. because. What is it, a calculator watch? Calculator yeah. watch. Actually, one of the first pictures I posted on Twitter was up before the enemy, and it was like, you know, Jock was always like, yeah, 4.30 a.m. Which one is that, the Casio? Yeah, Casio. Oh, oh cool. Dude. <laughs> Circa 1984, yeah. 85. That watch when I was a kid, dude, like, <laughs> I would have killed someone yeah. for that. Only the cool kids had the calculator one. Oh, Usually, if you had a watch, it was just the regular Casio, and the cool kids had the calculator. I had the first Iron Man. Did you? Yeah. It was black with like a little red trim on it. I asked for it for Christmas. My parents got it for me, but I knew where they hid presents. <laughs> so every day after school, I would go into their room and I would take it out of the box. And I would okay. I had set the time. I would wear it. I would just hang out there. And then before I go to bed, I'd like sneak back, put it in. <laughs> and so like on Christmas Day, it was like I'd been wearing the watch for a month. Right, right. That was your watch. Actually, I think you got a got I'm a into watches too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I got one. Actually, I got I got quite a few of these. Chaco, you should model. have your own brand of watches. Yeah. yeah, we'll see how all that turns out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nonetheless, yeah, I am very proud of this calculator watch. Back to the store though, Jocko store. No watches, but <laughs> yet there yet. are yet yeah not yet, but there are some cool shirts. In my opinion, I think they're cool. Discipline equals freedom. All these things. Jocko's head, good written in backwards. Various layers to these shirts, not just like, oh, a picture, that's it. So, if you like any of that stuff, I'm not even saying go buy this stuff. I'm not saying that. Just go to the jockostore.com. See if you like it. If you like it, you want one, then you buy one. And that supports the podcast. You know, it's a systemic thing. Good. There you go. Patches on there as well. Rash guards. Rash oh, yeah. Guards are you good. know what you didn't mention? That you should have mentioned, because apparently it's been pretty cool out there in the world. Lay it on me. Psychological warfare. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't mention it this time, but I mentioned it last time. And in my everyday life. And I use it, so there you go. <laughs> Psychological warfare. You use it? I use it. Every day? When needed. Here's the thing. You can't use it every day. No, you can't. Actually, you can't. I'm not going to say you can't use it every day. But the reason, the whole reason that I was like, hey, Jocko, what do you say, you know, when you're Oh, because you don't need weak? it every day. I don't need it every day. Okay. But it varies, you know, from season to season. So, like, you know, Christmas so time. So, if, if you are coming up against moments of weakness, yep. we have a little method to get you 
over those humps. Yeah, would <laughs> it's kind of like coaching a little bit because you psychopathic can, coaching. Yeah, yeah, psycho <laughs> for sure. It because it kind of. I played the same it for time. I played one of them for my seven year old daughter the other day because she was about to eat some candy or something. Right, I was like, right. come here for a minute. Yeah. So I played her that one. You know mm-hmm. the the snack time one. Yep. Sugar coated lies. Yeah, sugar coated lies. She was. She was pretty impressed, but what impressed me was later in the evening, she was kind of saying it. Yeah. I was like, hmm. See? And that's what I was going to say, where you explain, it's like, cool, it's Jocko telling me to do this, so yes, I'll do it or not do it or whatever. <laughs> but you explain some 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 good stuff like to, to remember, you mm. know? Like then, that it is sugar-coated lies. Yeah. And that's kind of catchy, too, so it sticks in your it's mind. poison. So, you can buy that on iTunes. Yes. It's somewhere else too, right? Google Play. Google if you Play. want it. And also, everyone that asks for an alarm tone to wake up, that's it. That's it. It's there now. You don't have to ask anymore. You can just go to iTunes yeah. and get that psychological clear it, warfare. Clear it with your wife though. Or whoever you sleep with. Yeah, we've gotten some serious feedback on that one. Yeah, because you can't. what happens is the alarm goes off if you have it set, then it's going to be my voice. And it's gonna be weird because it sounds yeah. sound like there's some strange man in your yeah, room at four thirty in the morning, <laughs> which is kind of weird. Yeah, yeah. does it the alarm only work at four thirty a.m.? Like, no, it's just <laughs> it's just a it's just a it's an album. It's a, it's an album of tracks, and each track s- talks about some moment of weak, generally a moment of weakness that you have. Like, there's ones to wake up in the morning. There's ones to you know what you don't feel like going to the gym. Go to the gym. There's ones you feel like eating a donut. Don't eat the donut. There's one. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna put this off for a while. I'm gonna procrastinate. No, you're not gonna procrastinate. So all the little moments of weakness that we all have as humans can be countered using psychological warfare. Factually, yep. yeah. There's there's actually two on there. There's one called like I think it's called like No More. It's basically no like more. I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah, yeah. No More Man, is a good one. That one's good because it puts into words exactly like what you wanna think. Like you know, because right. you always feel that. Like right. you know how like you know you're gaining some weight, or I mean, a lot of times you know why you're gaining weight, and so it's a little bit different, but. You're like, you know what? I'm not doing. I'm drinking, is one where you wake up kind of hungover and you're like, I'm not drinking anymore. You know, like that thing. But you never really execute. Yeah, you know, man, it's perfect because it sticks with you. You're like, no more. And then the other one was um, when you're talking about every day. It's called yeah. every day. I every think every day. Every day is a Monday. That guy, that one. That one's dope, man. Yeah. So you can get after that. Also, if you want to get some tea. If you're a tea drinker or if you're not a tea drinker, you can get some Jocko White tea. You can get it on Amazon. It's fully in stock. Y'all, those <laughs> days of being out of stock, I think we've got them under control for now. And I won't make any promises because last time I made a promise, yeah. you guys went psycho. So I'm not going to make a promise, but you can get the Jocko White tea. I figured out, again, it doesn't, t- it doesn't taste like tea, really. It doesn't taste like coffee. And for a long time, I was at a loss for words to describe what it tasted like. Mm-hmm. And I figured it out. I was responding to someone, and I figured it out what it tastes like. And it's pretty simple. Mm. The Jocko White tea tastes like victory. <laughs> <laughs> so if you need to, and we need to trade, I need to trademark that one. Stat. The fact that Jocko White tea tastes, tastes like, like victory. victory. Boom. Yeah. So get some of that if you need to deadlift more, if you need to overhead squat more weights, this will increase all those numbers beyond anything you could have hoped for. (laughs) You can drink it from a Jocko mug. 
It says get after it on it. That's good. Oversized, by the way. Yeah, it's big. Appropriately. It's big. It's not. Somebody somebody made the comment that it's not comically big. Right. It's not a joke. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like clown shoes. No, it's not clown so shoes. Big. No, no, no. It's <laughs> not like that. Different. But it's big enough to, you know, it's big like a pair of work boots. It's as big as a pair of work boots. It will kick you in the ass right. if needed. Yeah. So it's that big. If you haven't got the book Extreme Ownership, you can pick that up there. It's about leadership. It's about combat leadership. I'm going to give my friend Peter Atia about three copies of it just to make sure he reads it. So if he has to deal with any C players, he's going to step up his game a little yeah. bit, hopefully. I have a pre-publication copy. That's right. But that's I clearly right. missed that chapter. Wait, what's a pre-publication? What does that mean? Meaning before the book came out, hey, here's what the book is. Okay, but it's still that's it. That's, that's the book. It. Yeah, yeah, no, he's yeah. Not you, like, got, you got the pretty. It's a paperback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like yeah. You got the VIP yeah. pre-screening. Yeah, yeah. Um, hey, speaking of extreme ownership, we're having another muster. If you don't know what it is, check out the website extremeownership.com. It's going to be in New York City, so everyone can come because if you're on the East Coast, no matter where you're on the world, it's easy to get to New York, and. May 4th and 5th, if you're a leader or you want to be a leader, come and get it. There's every level of leaders there, CEOs, mid-level managers, every industry you can think of too. People that manufacturing and finance and construction and health and pharmaceutical and there's police there and fire and military and oil industry and energy, everybody. All working on leadership, talking about leadership. So, and I've said, it's gonna sell out. We're moving in that direction quickly, and Echo hasn't even released his videos yet because he's on Hawaiian time. No, no. Oh, I, you're not. No, I'm. I'm working diligently, <laughs> and I'm going for quality. Not, you know. You're not gonna put out any scrub material, right? Right. Once those videos come out, my feeling is it's gonna sell out very quickly. So get there now. Sign up for it. If you need a police or a fire discount or a military discount, or if you're gonna bring a group of people, I think the biggest group we had at the last one from one company was around 16 people from, from one, one company, company or 12 people. But there's some pretty big numbers of companies that are showing up there. Come and come and get it. Echo, you got any closing comments? My pleasure. Uh, no other closing comments. Thank you. Other than it was your pleasure, Peter. Yeah. Any closing comments? I would only echo Echo's comment. And that didn't even get planned until it came out. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Hey, and if you want to continue these conversations with Peter, on Twitter, you're Peter Atia MD. What are you on Facebook? Um, I don't know. Probably... Uh, do you still have Eating Academy? Yeah, yeah. That's okay. Probably the Is that the place I, I to look? I don't, I, don't, I don't do a lot. So anything. Twitter's your most Twitter's prominent. And I've been berated into doing something on Instagram. I just can't cope at the moment. Yeah. There's a way to connect the two. I've tried it. I don't like it. I do them separately. Yeah, you don't really connect Twitter to the Instagram. I think it's the other way around. Well, there's a way Instagram. to connect some of them somehow. Yeah. yeah. I just don't have enough pictures to show. Right. Yeah. I, I don't have anything to talk Don't you about. have a bunch of watches? Yeah. But, <laughs> See, uh, I'm, yeah. I'm showing a watch, the same watch every day. Bro, show that ring, yeah, how you were explaining that's true. it. Bro, that's badass ring. You could do like 12 <laughs> pictures just on the ring. I, I, what, sure. if my, what if my whole Instagram shtick became this? Like my blood glucose at yeah. every moment. That'd be pretty cool. And you kind of indicate what you ate you or could, something you like could this. Just, you could just uh, save that screen yeah, and post God, it up there. so much work. <laughs> 
it's it's work. It's hard <laughs> it's labor to save that thing and press submit to. It actually has a little switch that you can just make it go. It's not that much work. All right, I'll think about it. For yeah, somebody that's there. swimming eighteen miles know, in the ocean, bro, talking about too much work to post an Instagram picture. You got <laughs> issues, son. Uh, All right, Echo and I, we are also present and accounted for on the interwebs, on Twitter, on Instagram, and also if you're going to be looking around that face, Boki Boha, we're going to be there. (laughs) Echo is at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink, and again, I would like to thank you, Peter, for coming on, and more important for everything you've done for me, which really the way it's connected all together, getting me through Kirk to Tim Ferriss, which was the book, and getting me on Joe Rogan, which led to this podcast. It's been awesome. So to you and to to Doc Kirk Parsley for introducing us, but thank you and him for what you guys have done for me. So men and women in uniform out there holding the line. Thanks for your service and your sacrifice to the police on the corner fighting crime, the firemen fighting fires. Thanks for keeping us safe. To the medical people in the medical professions like Peter, doctors, nurses, physicians, assistants, EMTs, all of you working to save lives, thank you for your commitment to service and it's obviously a massive commitment when you hear about the hours and the emotional trauma that it takes to go into any one of those industries and services and to everybody else that's listening thank you it's your communications your questions your participation your feedback and your spreading of the word that makes this possible and it's what makes this worthwhile So thank all of you for all of that. And finally, thanks to all of you for getting out there and getting after it. So until next time, this is Dr. Peter Atia and Echo and Jocko. Out.